This is what is so important. You need to design a brain that lets you make the good decisions in the first place. And then you can have whatever it is that you like to do that you would like to do more of. Those things will fall into place. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Man, I am really excited to bring to you today's sponsor, Superfat, because they are so near and dear to my heart. I feel best on a high-fat diet, like healthy fats, right? I don't do a lot of carbs during the day. I do a little bit of protein. I fast kind of half the day, but in the afternoon, I start to get hungry. And if I'm out and about or on an airplane or in some strange town, I don't know the restaurants, I'm tempted to eat some really crappy food. That's where Superfat comes in. They make convenient on-the-go pouches that are super easy to travel with. And inside these little magic pouches are healthy fats made from almonds, uh, coconut oil, macadamias, really good healthy fats found in plants with only three to five net carbs per serving. That makes it easy for me to get fueled up without crashing. If I eat carbs and sugar and stuff, especially during the day, I get so tired and I get more hungry. Super fat has polyunsaturated fat, which is scientifically proven to alter the physiological markers for hunger. Yes, that's right. It fills you up. So Superfat uses plant fats, protein, and high amounts of fiber, a dynamic trifecta to keep you feeling full longer. And feeling full is what I want to do, especially when I'm traveling around. Not to mention their fuels or little fat packets improve the absorption of vitamins A, D, E, and K. I mean, the fact is without fat, you wouldn't be able to absorb these essential vitamins. So get yourself over to superfat.com. Enter the code Luke to save 15% off. That's superfat.com and Luke saves you 15% off. Do yourself a favor. When you get over to superfat.com, pick up the mint cacao and the coffee flavor. You will not regret it. They provide a little boost as well as those really filling healthy fats. That's superfat.com. Have you ever noticed that no matter how much you work on your lifestyle and your diet, that you still have issues with your gut and digestion? You still have times where you're feeling a bit bloated, gassy, maybe have some brain fog because your food's just not going down right? You might have something called dysbiosis, which is a crazy imbalance in all of the various bacteria that exist in your gut. Well, I found a solution for you. It's freaking awesome. They're called Just Thrive Probiotics. You can find their website at thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. Here's all you have to do to get rid of all those problems. I know it sounds too easy, but it's true. You take one capsule per day after a meal or as directed. The capsules can even be opened and sprinkled on your food or in drinks. You can even bake them up to 455 degrees. Not that you would, but you could, which means they survive your digestive tract and all of those acids and all the heat inside you, unlike most other probiotics, because these guys are a spore-based probiotic. Just Thrive produces RDA levels of carotenoids and antioxidants such as alpha and beta carotene, lycopene, and lutein. 
That's geek language for healing your gut. That's right. So get over to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. And if you use the code Luke15, you're going to get 15% off your entire order. That's thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. I don't know who you are, but my name's Luke Story, and this is episode 271 of the Lifestylist Podcast with our guests, father and son duo, Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter. During these trying times of confusion, what better show to release right now than Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. The doctors are going to offer tons of great advice for lifestyle, diet, and mindset recommendations to keep your head right. And I think at this particular time, we could all use that. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and four-time New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 34 languages and include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. Then his son, Austin Perlmutter, MD, is a board-certified internal medicine physician. He's also very interested in methods of improving burnout and poor mental health in the medical field. And he writes a blog for Psychology Today called The Modern Brain. Here's what we talk about in this episode. Debunking the low-fat scam, why sugar is so bad for your brain, how a high-carb, high-sugar diet negatively impacts your mood, what is inflammation and how it affects our brain, how depression relates to inflammation, how inflammation from any cause affects our mood, how diet influences our decision-making, how our diet contributes to compounding emotional trauma and limbic system loops, the best quick fixes to break free from a fight-or-flight nervous system response, I think that one's going to be really useful right about now, the relationship between brain health and addictions, how we become addicted to our devices and how to break free from those addictions, why it's so important to improve our connection to the prefrontal cortex, activating the pineal gland and its relationship to fluoride and calcification, the role of ceremonial plant medicines and clinical psychedelics in making positive changes to your brain, the truth about microdosing mushrooms to increase neurogenesis, and the critical role of sleep in decision-making. I had a great time recording this episode with uh, the doctors here, man. They came by and uh, there was a guitar laying out and uh, lo and behold, David grabbed it, started playing and singing some Zeppelin songs here in the studio. I wish I had that actually on tape because it was fantastic. I was live streaming at the time. So had you followed me on Instagram, you would have caught that. Uh, It was really fun. These guys are just awesome. Uh, Very intellectually potent uh, experts and speakers, but also just a really high level of empathy and love with these guys. Just really, really cool people. And I was just really grateful to have the opportunity to sit and chat with them, uh, especially now. I think it's a great time to put out this episode because so much of how we react to the current pandemic we face is uh, in our minds, you know, in the ways that we think and it's more important than ever to stay mentally fit. So that's what we're going to talk about in this here episode. But before we jump into this conversation, I want to let you know that we have upgraded show notes and complete transcripts available to you for every single episode. I know as a podcast listener myself, oftentimes I want to pause and you know look something up online that was mentioned or find a link to something and go back and research it later. And it's difficult to do so on the fly. If you were subscribed to my email list, 
Each and every Tuesday, you would get the show notes, links, transcript, etc., delivered right to your inbox. Uh, I'm a very respectful keeper of an email list. I will not send you any emails unnecessarily. Uh, really, I'm just going to send you a notification every Tuesday and sometimes Fridays if there's a new podcast released with all the assets from that podcast. So to get on the email list, here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. That's lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. If you don't want to use a browser, you can text me. Text the word lifestylist, that's all one word, lifestylist, to this number, 44222. So on a US phone, text the word lifestylist to 44222 or visit lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. And I'm going to send you the show notes to every upcoming episode like this one. So you can have all of those notes and links right in front of you. Okay, so let's get our brains on and learn how to think right with Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter. Austin and David, welcome to the show, guys. DE Lighted. Thanks for having us. Yeah, dude. So this is my dudes. This is my first time having a father-son duo on the show. So I'm super excited. And I want to start off with just what inspired you guys to do a book together and actually start working together? Well, I was finishing up my medical residency at the time. I'm an internal medicine doctor. And in essence, I was realizing that so much of what was going on with patient care was an issue where patients weren't able to follow through on recommendations, where we'd have these wonderful conversations. And at the end of the day, patients really struggled to follow through and make those lifestyle changes. And my father and I talk about things all the time. And this is one of the big conversations we had. We understood that people were getting the information, but it wasn't sticking. And so we had a, a series of really phenomenal conversations around this, and he had already had some ideas about a new book. And in essence, over the course of several months, this idea came together, which was, we need to start making better decisions as it pertains to our health outcomes, as it pertains to our happiness outcomes. And we started looking into the research on decision-making and on how decisions lead to these outcomes and realized that there was so much great data that could change people's outcomes if they were able to make better decisions. And I think from there, the book just became an amazing labor of love for the both of us to be able to have this phenomenal relationship where we were able to talk about this science, but also provide this message that I believe both of us think is so empowering and will be so important to so many people. That was really that was a really Imagine good job. How I feel in my heart when I hear <laughs> right? that. Oh my gosh, oh, that's great, amazing. But Austin brings up some great points, and it's uh, you know it's very frustrating as healthcare providers to do whatever we do to learn as much information as we can. You know, you go to the conferences, you read the journals, you go to medical school, and then you're one on one with a patient. You're saying, "Hey, I've learned all this great stuff. You've got to make these lifestyle changes, and here's what you should do." You know, 60, 70% of the time, that doesn't happen. And as Austin said, that's really frustrating. So we, we wanted to look at not what are the decisions that you should make. Well, eat less refined carbohydrate, maybe exercise more. Not what are those decisions, but the decision-making process at the beginning. So 
you know, the people are reading countless books about eating this right way or time-restricted eating, eating these foods, exercising, etc. There are wonderful books out there, but they're useless to everybody unless they implement what the book is talking about, for crying out loud. So we want to take it to the higher order. How do we decide what to do and what, and what we won't do? And what we learned is that there are really two important areas of the brain that we focused on. One area is called the amygdala, and one area is called the prefrontal cortex. Now, for your listeners and viewers, I don't want to make this sound too complicated, but those are the two areas that we're going to talk about. Um, and the amygdala, Is the amygdala the one that gets activated when you thought you left your cell phone in an Uber? <laughs> Actually, so there was a... So just for your listeners, uh, I thought I left my cell phone in the Uber, and... Um, Immediately, my amygdala was activated, sort of the fear, panic, whatever. And then I, it was a very good lesson for me right then. I decided uh, to bring the adult back into the room and hopefully activated my prefrontal cortex and said, deep breath, let's just think about the future and how we're going to make this happen. As opposed to, and it's a very good point. So that, that exactly is what happened. But what we're realizing is, as far as decision-making goes... This prefrontal cortex that we have as a gift of being human, the such a large prefrontal cortex, allows us to make decisions that we think through that are based on thinking about the future consequences of that decision, as opposed to acting from the amygdala, which is impulsive. I'm going to drink this soda right now. I'm going to stay up really late. Uh, I'm thinking about myself, as opposed to... Maybe I should be more careful with what I eat. I should get some exercise. You name it. We'll talk about all these lifestyle choices. But it's getting to the heart of our decision-making. And what we learned that was really mind-blowing is the fact that the more we make crappy decisions, the more those decisions are not based on what we really know is good for us, the worse our decision-making <laughs> right. becomes a feedback and we're loop. locked in. It's, it's a feedback, uh, positive feedback. That's right. Wow. Without inhibition. I can totally see that. The good news, uh, the argument there is we can intersperse better decisions and then reroute that all to, come, to have better outcomes. And we'll talk about cool, that Cool, man. Wow. We had, we had a big agenda here. Yeah, this is, this is exciting. <laughs> With and it, plenty of coffee on board. So It's in, uh, yeah, shout out to our buddies at Zen Bunny, the amazing biodynamic coffee that these two are sipping. I already had my, it's quite strong. I already had my cup earlier. So my, um, I've had my cup for the day. But uh, yeah, so before we... God, there's so many different directions I want to go with this because I think you guys are onto something so groundbreaking here. And as people will have realized by the time this episode airs that I'm really spending 2020 uh, with a great deal of focus on brain health and especially as it pertains to consciousness and making better decisions and having um, deeper, more healthy relationships with self and others, et cetera. So I definitely want to get into the nitty gritty of that, but I do want to just back up a little bit because um, Grain Brain is my most recent uh, audio book of yours that I listened to. And so there were so many things in there that I was kind of familiar with and just went along with, but it was, it really took the fun out of like having a donut <laughs> cheat day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I, I do much better on like a you know, moderate protein, high fat, low carb, low sugar diet. I just feel better generally. I don't get too deep into the science, but I just know when I go off the rails that there's going to be a price to pay. So for those that are unfamiliar with that seminal work, I just want to run through and just kind of skim over some of the basic points, especially as they pertain to fallacies that are 
held by people publicly because of misinformation that's been presented. So starting out, for example... Is this the lightning round round here? We're going to start kind of with the lightning <laughs> okay. round because I, I just want to do a recap kind of, of of some of your prior work because I think there's just so many nuggets in there that are really valuable to people, especially who are still thinking, for example, fat makes you fat, you know, that kind of thing. So tell us a little bit about the kind of the low fat craze and how that came to be and why that is erroneous when it comes to health and specifically brain health. Well, the low-fat craze uh, was really, I think, hit its peak around 18 years ago and I think was promulgated uh, by the whole cholesterol-saturated uh, fat myth that I think was also promulgated by the desire for companies to sell drugs that would target that. I mean, beyond targeting cholesterol with various medications, including the statins, there were actually drugs that were developed to target dietary fat. So you could eat what you may not, you're too young, you may not know this, but there was a drug out called Olestra that actually would bind dietary fat so you wouldn't absorb it because absorbing fat would be the worst thing you could do. And people would take this drug, eat fatty foods, and then have that fat be excreted. Well, it didn't work out. Can you imagine excreting all of your dietary fat through <laughs> your uh, stool? Wow. So people were what can I say uh, to be uh, politically correct? They were soiling themselves with their dietary fat that they were now not absorbing. Here's the point about that that is so misguided. Uh, to target a macronutrient, fat in this case, that humans have been consuming for as long as we could say there have been humans and then some, uh, you know, is that a million years or longer? Uh, is is makes no sense from a histor historical perspective. Fat is a you know has twice the calorie density as carbohydrates and protein, so it's always been a wonderful source of calories for human uh, for humans. It's never been uh, you know out of our diets. We desperately need fat, not just as a caloric source, but fat being a vehicle by which we absorb fat soluble vitamins, for example, A, D, E, and K. Fat being a building block for the cell membranes, uh, for the major building block for your brain. Uh, and by the way, cholesterol being an important building block for the brain as well, separate conversation. But so this notion that dietary fat was somehow related to cardiovascular disease really took off and was oddly enough, we now know, uh, propagated by the sugar industry. So uh, the, the sugar industry insinuated itself into medical research and publication in the late 1960s. And this was only recently revealed in the Journal of the American Medical Association and then recapitulated in the New York Times that they were influencing what doctors were saying about dietary fat. That they, if they could get more people to freak out about dietary fat and hook dietary fat to risk for cardiovascular disease, that people would restrict fat and would, by default, start eating more carbs and sugar. And that's exactly what happened. And if you look at when that messaging took place and rates of obesity and diabetes lines up perfectly. That as soon as people stopped eating dietary fat and ate more and more refined sugar, rates of diabetes, as you would now expect, and rates of obesity went, went uh, skyrocketed. And at the same time, when we recognize the relationship between those diseases and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's and other degenerative conditions, everything followed in lockstep with that mis-messaging that we got from our supposed uh, respected publications. Which was, in, which was infused by industry. So it's, it's not a pleasant story, 
But I think vis-a-vis our new book, uh, Brainwash, it's a, it's a great demonstration as to how our choices can be influenced for the benefit of others, not necessarily for our benefit. And you know, one of the things we focus on today is how aggressive the efforts are to influence our choices today. That not only is there this incredible effort in our digital experience to make us feel inadequate in one way or another. We're not rich enough, handsome enough, tall enough, thin enough, or whatever it may be. But here is, if you feel that way, and we're going to make you feel that way, here's the quick quick fix. Here's the button to click to get the thing that's going to ostensibly offset that. You know, and uh, Right, well said. That feeds us into catering to this part of the brain that we describe in the book, the amygdala the instant satisfaction, the impulsivity. And the more you do that through what we're going to talk about, neuroplasticity, the harder is the wiring to that area of the brain, the more you see the world uh, in a fear-based model. And the more impulsive you are, the more narcissistic you are, the less empathetic, the less compassionate, the less desirous you are of connecting to other people, and the less likely you are to consider the long-term consequences of today's choices. Austin, can you break down in a summarized way why eating fat doesn't make you fat? When I eat like a a spoonful of ghee and someone's in my house, they'll look at me in shock going, you're going to get fat. Like people, I think they think that when you ingest fat that it just sticks to your body and becomes the fat of your body. Well, I think this is such a great conversation. And as you well know, the science of nutrition isn't necessarily incorporated into medical learning very well. And so when you hear these messages in, I guess, the lay public, the the media, it's so simple to think that calories in equals calories out. And fat, as my dad mentioned, is high in calories. So you'd think that if you eat more fat, you will become fat. But it really doesn't give the body nearly enough credit. If you consider the body as this Uh, incredibly integrated system where every part of it is talking to every other part of it. And then, I mean, that again is the scientific understanding we have of the body. And yet then we say, well, calories in equals calories out. It's that simple. It isn't. As it turns out, the body is far more complex than that. And it removes all of the influence of things that we know about, specifically things like insulin, which change signaling throughout the body and determine whether our nutrients will be packaged in fat cells or used to remodel, rebuild, and re-energize our bodies. So the really important takeaway point here is that it turns out eating dietary fat doesn't really translate into fat gain. With that said, eating simple dietary carbohydrates seems to do that more so. The reason is that strongly activates insulin. And insulin is basically a signal that tells the body to store fat. It tells the body we need to hold on to this because that winter is coming up, whether or not it actually does, who knows, but we need to store this extra fat reserve. And it doesn't mean that the fat itself is being converted into the fat. What it instead means is that the carbohydrates are signaling for the body to conserve fuel in fat cells. So I think that I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that. No, I mean, what, what you're saying is spot on, and that is that we have to look at our food beyond the macronutrients, fat, par, um, protein, and carbohydrates, and look upon our food as information. Mm-hmm. Food is information. What Austin talked about is that consuming simple carbs like sugar is information. It's telling your body that winter is coming. 
when did the fruit ripen? It ripens in the fall, right? And so you're eating sugar for this one time of the year. And as, as again, Austin said, it stimulates the production of insulin. Insulin says make fat and store fat. Why? Because winter's coming. So we all have a sweet tooth because it was a powerful survival mechanism. And now, as we talk about in Brainwash, that survival mechanism is hacked by people infusing sugar into our food that more than 60% of the 1.2 million foods sold in our grocery stores has added sweetener to make it more appealing. So we can't stop. It's catering to that primitive and life-sustaining desire to eat sweet because it did keep us alive. Those who had the sweet tooth stored the fat and survived the winter. Those who, have, who are catering to the sweet tooth now will be less likely to survive because they'll gain weight. And interestingly, uh, you know, it's been said, well, we gain weight because we eat too much. We make fat because we, we eat too much. Gary Tobbs has an interesting uh, way of looking at that. We, we understand that our body fat signal has a role to play in our signaling for our um, appetite and for inflammation. But our body fat sends signals to eat more. It affects a hormone, for example, called ghrelin. And is, uh, so our body fat wants to make more body fat. So uh, as Gary Taub said, uh, we're not fat because we overeat. We overeat because we're getting fat. Oh, it's interesting. an interesting way of looking at it that our fat, you know, in years gone by, in my day, when I was, when I was your age, <laughs> uh, fat was a storage depot of calories. End of story, right? And now we know that fat is an organ. Fat is secreting uh, chemicals that are involved in inflammation. We call them adipo, like fat, kinds or cytokines. Fat is uh, involved in playing, uh, is affecting the endocannabinoid system, which we can talk about. Uh, but it's also very much controlling our appetite. So uh, it, there's a lot more going on with fat than it's simply being a cosmetic issue. It has huge, huge health implications. Let me, let me just yeah. one more thing that comes to mind because uh, we recently just reviewed a study that compares body mass index, a measurement has to do with your height and weight, a, a conversion, a relationship, and the ability to postpone, uh, to make decisions that are, are more looking at long-term outcome versus being impulsive. And it, it demonstrates that a body mass index has a, a very important role to play in allowing us either to access the prefrontal cortex and make better decisions or at higher levels of body mass index, locking us into that part of the brain, the amygdala, which is impulsive. So the more we gain weight, the less likely we are, again, another feed forward cycle to make better decisions. So now we've covered two things. Inflammation makes it worse and body fat makes it worse. That's so interesting. That feedback loop is really, really trippy. Feedback loop. Yes, yeah, so there's definitely a play <laughs> the on title that. for another book, sure. maybe. Perhaps. I'm just saying. Royalty, the the royalty over here. I would say one more thing to yeah. that end. The way that I'm reframing this is our adipocytes, our fat cells, they have their own agenda. They want to continue to survive. And how do they do this? They send messages to our brain, which is keep us alive. Eat the foods that are going to keep us going. It's a crazy thing when you think about it that way, but this is what the science is telling us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think, it's, we know cancer cells do the same thing. Cancer cells say they're going to inhibit uh, those body functions that would have broken them down. They increase angiogenesis or the growth of blood vessels. They're doing everything they can to survive. And as also said, same thing with fat cells. They just, they want to be around. So they make you cater to them. 
Wow, it's so fascinating. We're being run by our bodies without even knowing it. Yeah, but that's what we're doing. In <laughs> we're, we're, we're calling attention to it. That's job one. Right. Raising awareness as to what your lack of sleep is doing, as to what your digital experience is doing, as to what your sedentarity is doing and what your diet is doing, what your lack of nature exposure are doing to you. So that said, now we go to phase two, then what do you do about it? We'll talk about that later. Uh, as we kind of uh, move out of the fat piece, I think it would be really useful for people to understand um, the differences. You mentioned inflammation, of course, which is kind of a cornerstone of, of your work. And I'm assuming the work you guys are doing together I think that many people still don't understand the differences between something like a grass-fed ghee, butter, coconut oil, uncooked olive oil, fats, good, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, bad, to just put it in sort of a dietary duality here, being like all of the seed oils. And I know when you go in a store like Whole Foods, um, I call it canola foods, because it's like you go to the salad bar and everything's just canola oil or so many products that are like in the health food store will say like vegetable oil right. or safflower, sunflower, all of these oils. And um, maybe you could just speak to kind of the differences between the various fats that are in our food system. So I'll speak to one point you just made, which I think is so important. You have these three macronutrients being protein, fats, and carbohydrates. And it's easy to say that it's a simple solution. Do a little more of this, a little less of this. But as you mentioned, the nuance is so key. And it's understanding that we now know trans fats are bad for us. They stimulate inflammation in the body. Omega-3 fats, which is a polyunsaturated fat, is good for us. And are we capable of holding this in our heads and understanding that fat isn't universally bad or good? I think we are. It's important to have some level of nuance with these things. And so the messaging and brainwash is to understand that our dietary choices should be based around a simple core unifying uh, idea, which is what are we doing to lower inflammation in our body? And conversely, what are we doing that we may be unaware of that is increasing inflammation in our body? So from that lens, then we can reevaluate our macronutrients. We can look at carbohydrates and say, well, do some carbohydrates increase inflammation in the body while others decrease inflammation in the body? And the answer is yes. So certain types of carbohydrates, meaning your refined carbohydrates where all of the good fiber has been stripped away, those increase inflammation in our bodies. But good carbohydrates, meaning high in fiber, meaning things that humans haven't messed with that much, things like you find in vegetables, these are good for the body. Similarly, I think that thinking about how much has a protein been processed, meaning is that an animal that's been raised in a lot where it's been fed lots of antibiotics, lots of hormones, and been fed things that perhaps that animal wouldn't have eaten in the wild, that is a processed food. And these are proteins that then also, as the refined carbs increase inflammation, a wild game, on the other hand, is something that may not increase inflammation and actually have anti-inflammatory properties. Talking about, for example, salmon, farm-raised versus wild-caught salmon and the different inflammatory profiles you see with those uh, macronutrient contents contained within. And then finally, to talk about um, fats. And again, I mentioned trans fats being something that we know increases inflammation, but as you said, vegetable uh, fats and seed fats, things that have been highly processed. I, I would just come back to this message again, which is how much has the food been processed? Because that correlates quite strongly with how much it might be inflammatory. So appreciating that our monounsaturated fats, things like what you find in olives, 
uh, olive oil and avocado and nuts and the polyunsaturated fats, which again, bring us back to the omega-3s. These are things that are very good for us, are low in inflammation, actually are anti-inflammatory, as opposed to a lot of what you can find, as you mentioned, in the salad bar where they're seemingly trying to produce a healthy product, but then you read through the ingredients. And honestly, my girlfriend and I were just talking about this two days ago. You want to believe that you go to a healthy restaurant and you look at the ingredients and it's going to be all the things that you know are good for you. And then you read in and there's added sugar and there's canola oil. And these are things that are, I want to emphasize this, inflammatory. And so yes, inflammation matters because it correlates strongly with diseases like diabetes and Alzheimer's disease, but inflammation because it is going to compromise our decision-making. And if you have that happening, you will continue to make those decisions to eat those inflammatory foods because your decision-making is compromised. Such an important point. This is a feed-forward cycle where eating inflammatory foods compromises your decision-making, leading you to eating more pro-inflammatory foods. So we've got to put a stop to this cycle. And that's what Brainwash is all about. I mean, just uh, there's a couple of things that Austin said uh, that I hadn't heard before that I'm going to remember. And that is, <laughs> no, really good. I, I mean, we talk about processed foods. You know, I'm thinking in a package, in a box, 10 ingredients, that's a processed food, right? But you, you talked about processed foods uh, as you were referring to uh, meat, for example, fed uh, antibiotics and uh, hormones, as well as uh, uh, range, uh, rather, uh, non-wild fish, farm-raised fish. As processed foods, I like that. I mean, I, I want to talk about that moving forward because they are processed. That's not how those foods would be in their natural environment. And, and point well taken about the health food store. I mean, if we buy into this idea that it's a health food store, first question is, what are the other food stores selling if it's not <laughs> totally. a health food store? I've talked about that so many times, <laughs> yeah. how we have this um, different differential between uh, what we call organic food and then conventional food. I've always thought that was so backwards because truly conventional food is food that has not been altered or messed with. It's just grown, ideally. Like the most conventional would be a wild food, right? Secondarily food that's grown without pesticides. But now we have this special category called organic food that's that weird food over there. And then conventional or normal food is food that's literally sprayed with poison <laughs> that's meant to kill stuff. You know, it's just, it's crazy. You know, Luke, uh, when I um, lecture, sometimes I like to set the audience up and then hit them with a punchline. One of them is I say, gosh, you know, nowadays it's so wonderful because we can go anywhere. There's, there's organic food wherever we go. You know, back when my father was young, uh, you know how hard it was for him to find organic food? And the audience is thinking, I said, wasn't hard at all because all the food was organic. That was before the 1950s and 40s when... We started poisoning our food. You know, uh, what is, think about that. I mean, uh, Gregory Bates, an anthropologist, said that mankind is the only, only animal who will befoul his own nest. And we're seeing the consequences of that, not just in human health, but in terms of health of the planet. And, uh, you know, that's the big picture that at you know, the end of the day, the existential part of brainwash that when we finally got to that point was, uh, you know, made us take, take a moment and sit back and realize uh, that we had unleashed the genie here, that um, if, in fact, this westernized diet, the, you know, the high inflammatory type diet, is, if it's becoming global, and it is, and it's globalizing now this prepackaged type of quick, you know, food, which is highly inflammatory, and if inflammation, as we now know, is disconnecting people 
from the prefrontal cortex and locking them into the amygdala, which is the us versus them part of the brain, then this global change in diet has these existential implications of fostering this fear and this us versus them mentality across the globe. Wow, that's interesting. And it's it's trippy that the the play on our inherent cravings for calorically dense foods and you know fats and sugars like that's the very thing that is being targeted because it's the most profitable right and the thing that locks us into that craving but also then as you're saying instigates that more base level of interfacing with others that's really it's interesting true. i mean it, it is a- which of course then is a loop of making us more disconnected and unhappy Without that question. makes us want to go eat those foods more it's crazy well you know we talk about give us 10 days we just want you, and you in particular, all right? We're challenging you. The 10-day okay. challenge here. I'm up for it. <laughs> Depending just, on what it is. <laughs> uh, you've already agreed, so <laughs> we can throw anything at you at this point. Uh, but, you know, 10 days of paying attention to how much time you're spending online, uh, being mindful about your online experience by being mindful about uh, making changes so you get a restorative sleep, enough sleep, that you do spend some time in nature, that you are careful in terms of what you're eating, that you are dedicating time to meditation on a daily basis, uh, and you know, doing all of the components of the program because it's enough, even if you just do a few of these things, to help that decision-making very quickly to allow you then to embrace what's going on. You know, Most of this battle is, is getting the information, realizing... What in the heck has happened to me? How have I been taken advantage of in terms of my decision making? So that's all we're looking to do. You know, we're looking to just change that a little bit, give people just a little bit more traction because, you know, so many people are suffering because they've got the information, but we're providing the bridge between information and action. Let's go into the sugar piece a bit because I think, like fats, uh, Many people just give a blanket categorization to sugars, right? But there's all sorts of different um, sources of sugar. Do they affect the brain differently? In other words, if we have like a really crappy sugar, which to me would be the bottom of the scale, maybe corn syrup, right? Speaking of refined and then uh, perhaps uh, coconut sugar or something like that or monk fruit extract. Give us like a breakdown. I, I love it. Go ahead. Are there like, no, I'll let you handle are this there, one. Oh. Are there, <laughs> you might you not like, like this tag answer. Team here. What, what I want to know is like, if you could break down sort of a simple hierarchy of like, if you have to put something sweet in your food, you know, stevia, monk fruit, extract, xylitol, whatever, down to like the bottom of the so barrel. we're not talking about sugars and we're talking about sweeteners. Well, um, let's expand it to sweeteners. Yes, okay, but good. you could perhaps tee it up by saying, you know, sugar in general is bad for your brain because of X, Y, and Z. It's, it's a great question. And this does harken back even to the grain brain days and uh, where people would tell me, you know, uh, no, we don't use sugar. We only use uh, uh, organic honey from made from bees that are on an ashram and meditate three times a day <laughs> and therefore it's got to be good for me. Or, well, you know, organic maple syrup. I mean, that sounds great. Or coconut or whatever the sugar is. It's sugar. It's sugar. You can dress, you put lipstick on the pig, it's sugar, right? And your body doesn't know that it came from a package from the best health food store around. It's labeled organic and it was on sale. It doesn't matter. Sugar, uh, you know, there, there are types of sugar. There's glucose and fructose, as you were alluding to, that affect the body differently. But they each 
you know, have their, their detriments, whereby uh, fructose, by definition, doesn't affect insulin pathways. It does lead to what we call fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and has a huge effect on uh, other aspects of our health that are not good for us. So, you know, what I do my best to do is to get people away from catering to their sweet tooth all the time. The more we cater to the sweet tooth by saying, okay, I'm not having sugar, I'm having stevia or using monk fruit, whatever it may be, the more then we activate that pathway and the more that becomes indelible. Uh, If you want to use a little stevia or monk fruit, then have at it. But any of the sugars, I love this one. Uh, In recognition of the dangerous aspects of fructose, the highest fructose-containing sweetener out there is this thing called agave nectar. Now, how could that oh, yeah. be bad? It's called nectar for crying right, out loud. Right. And it's in the health food store. When you buy it, get a tea or a coffee, it's right there because it's at the health food store. It's agave nectar. I mean, it's not sugar. No, it's ne- nectar, the, the drink of the gods, right? Ambrosia was the food of the gods. Well, and they show, the, be good they show the cacti in the photo too. And you're like, that doesn't look sweet. That can't be bad for me. Yeah, and... Uh, so uh, I, I just think it's the messaging, and the messaging is that it that sugar. I'm, I hate to make uh, these all encompassing statements, but all sugar is bad. Uh, you know that's that's pretty dramatic. But we should avoid all sugars, and even beyond that, this notion of refined carbohydrates. It's not that all grains are bad. Do you want to have some uh, organic rice, a serving of that with a meal? Have at it. You know, rice is by definition a grain. It's the seed of a grass. Yes, have some. If you can find some uh, non-GMO organic uh, corn, which good luck with that. But if you can, have a little bit of it. Why not? I mean, popcorn by and large is organic. Who knew? Or at least non-GMO. So if you I've want, heard that, that the GMO yes. uh, kernels don't pop well or something. Is, the you kernels think don't, any... but the generals do. And the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go with me on this. <laughs> but oh, anyhow, that's uh, true. So uh, there's a snack for you, some organic popcorn, which you can right. buy. And by definition, is that a grain? You bet. Then there are the sort of, you know, the quasi-grains that are out there. That might be good in moderation, but recognition that these are a good source uh, or bad source of carbohydrate if you're if you're watching your carbs. So, you know, you were getting at something earlier, and that is how the our sweet tooth was an entry point for the hacking people to to get into our sweet tooth and manipulate our choices. And Austin brought up a very good point that he he brought into the book about how uh, humans you know, being social animals is uh, an, an entry point as well. You should tell us about that. I think that the two fundamental hacks, one being our natural desire for sweet and the other being our natural desire to exist in a tribe, to be accepted by the people around us, are probably the biggest things that we bring up in the book when it comes to easy to understand hacks into our brains. We mentioned the sugar hack. The idea that humans are part of a tribe, that we rely on each other, something that has been pretty well understood. And it makes sense. Back in the day, you needed somebody to watch your back in case that saber-toothed tiger was coming up behind you. But these days, it's being unfortunately manipulated to make us buy into these systems where we think we are developing friends. And sometimes we're not really. We think we're participating in this social network 
that we are on social media and therefore, by definition, we are becoming more social. We're becoming more integrated, more connected. And it doesn't mean that that isn't happening. But every time we go onto these social networks, we are exposing ourselves to mental manipulation. And if you're keeping up with the news, which I don't always recommend, actually, you'll see there are so many stories that substantiate this claim. Your attention is being sold when you go online and your, uh, your eyes are being directed towards targeted media that can very easily polarize us. And this is a big concern because what it means is if we're spending our time in these echo chambers of partisan thought on social media, we're actually becoming less disconnected. We're becoming more polarized against the people of the opposing political party or even the opposing sports team. Right. Or the, the keto, paleo, you know, carnivore. <laughs> within, the health, within the health industry, there's a lot of that too, which is funny and, to and see it because it goes in cycles. Right. You can see it kind of every 10 years, you know, there's camps that switch sides and all that. Listen, it's really nice to believe that all of a sudden we've got all the answers and this is the solution. It's this diet or that diet. But if you look back at history, it's very unlikely that we've got it all figured out. And if we can appreciate that and think to ourselves, everyone else out there is just doing the best that they can. There's so much more to relate. And this is a central message of our book is that we need to cultivate empathy. People who have higher levels of empathy have higher levels of well-being. They have better relationships. These are essential things. You want to be in a good relationship with your partner you need to have empathy. And that means effective empathy, yes, but also cognitive empathy, being able to understand what they may be thinking. When we put ourselves into these social media chambers of believing that now we have all the answers and everyone else is bad, we can't bring that online. And we can't understand that these are other people doing the best they can, trying to make sense of this really intense and crazy world. And then we can't relate to them. So it's something I was thinking about the other day. If you look at political divides and how they've been expanding over the last 10 or so years, people are more politically divided than they ever have been before. That means that we are being distanced from our neighbors. We are doubling down on our political ideologies. And this split, you know, for one reason or another, seems to be something people want to hold on to. But there is so much that we have in common. There's so much more we have in common with our neighbors than these specific concerns that we have. If we're capable of getting together, having dinner with them, and bringing our empathy online, we can learn so much and improve the quality of our lives. So empathy is key. On the other hand, we worry that some of these social media mechanisms are instead fostering the opposite of empathy. And what would that be? Well, that's narcissism. And there are a number, <laughs> number of studies that show that people oh, yeah. have become more narcissistic in the last several decades. And unfortunately, narcissism is linked with a variety of pathological outcomes. One of the more interesting pieces is that people with narcissism have problems with their cortisol regulation. And so why does that matter? Well, cortisol is the stress hormone. Cortisol and stress in general distance us from the part of our brain that's able to make good decisions. And it activates the part of our brain, the amygdala, that keeps us locked into making these impulsive, irrational, and emotionally reactive decisions. So let's walk that through a little bit slower. Narcissism is linked with problems with cortisol regulation. Higher levels of cortisol take our prefrontal cortex, our thoughtful part of our brain, offline. So you can see how there are many mechanisms through which over-reliance on social media, and again, not saying social media is bad, but doing it the wrong way can have 
significant impact across a variety of very important parts of our lives and our brain health. There's a really interesting um, correlation there, I think, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, but when you're looking at the the human desire for community and to be a member of a tribe and mm-hmm. to be accepted because that's how we're wired to, you know, form bonds that unify us together for safety, right? And then social media in its most um, positive intent would be a way that we can keep that connection going despite of distance and lack of physical proximity. However, and in addition, because the social media um, I think the brain mechanism there that's driving us back is dopamine, right? And so we feel this sense of connection from likes and comments and bonds and follows and unfollows and swipes and all that. But in an interpersonal, like going back, um, you know, hunter-gatherer days, interpersonal relationships would have been buffered dopamine when you get excited, right? Oh, I saw that, you know, he came back from the hunt. I thought he might have been dead. But then there's also oxytocin because there's human mm. touch, Right. And, and I make this correlation to social media because of something I learned from uh, John Gray in regard to pornography and why it's so damaging to the brain because you have these insane dopamine spikes, but when you're with a, a real human, you have high dopamine, but it gets tempered by the oxytocin that's created throughout the human bond. So do you think there's a correlation between the addictive nature of social media and the dopamine spikes that we're getting and the lack of you know, true connection that might temper that and make it less addictive. Like I don't have to hug my friend 10 times when I see him, but I'll refresh my phone 10 times. Well, I think the whole online experience, even beyond social media is addictive because it is really designed for immediate gratification across the, across a big spectrum. Uh, whether it's gratification to buy certain things, gratification by the number of likes that you've gotten, uh, gratification that your political party is the right political party. Why so? Because that's the site that you are on. Whether you're uh, a Republican or Democrat you or liberal or conservative, you're going to gravitate to those areas of the internet that are fostering your belief system. So it entrenches you deeper and deeper. And that is contrary to what the prefrontal cortex is all about. The prefrontal cortex is that part of your brain that allows you to engage the perspective of another person. And that's really very important. Uh, maybe, maybe the world is flat. I, I don't think it is, but maybe it is. If you believe that it is, I want to visit that a little bit right. because that's how we make progress. We don't. Flat Earthers are my favorite Twitter oh. follows because they <laughs> make listen. some very compelling points. I'm just saying. <laughs> they, Sometimes you know I'm what? like, wow, they're, you got me thinking. valuable to listen to. Yeah. Uh, because if we dig in our heels, and if it's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, we're all going to be uh, have no teeth and be blind ultimately, right? So I, I have to be okay. I may not uh, embrace what you're saying, but as Austin said, this idea of cognitive empathy, to be able to see things through your eyes, to walk a mile in your shoes and see what it's like. Because one of one area that I've been criticized for over the years, and I, I, I'm grateful for it, is uh, there was this, uh, a magazine put a really scathing article about Dr. Perlmutter uh, uh, a few years back saying, oh, he first told us we should be on a low-fat diet 20 years ago, and now listen to him. And that it changed my messaging. You know, I, I, ha- I did change my messaging. And I'm going to tell all of your viewers and listeners, I will likely continue to change my messaging. It's what you want me to do. You want me to stay up with the literature and do the very best I can to speak from the heart and tell you what I've learned. And that's going to change. And 
one of the ways I learn and ultimately change is by listening to the opinions of other people, whether they are similar to mine or different. If I constantly only listen to people who have the same opinion as I do, I won't make any progress, i.e., vis-a-vis our conversation. If I'm only on those social media sites that are in line with, with my ideology, I won't experience diversity. I won't experience what the rest of the world may be thinking. And therefore, I don't have the opportunity to change my, uh, my groundwork, my frame of reference, my ideology, which is so important. You know, we as humans have only two huge attributes that differentiate uh, us from other animals. We have an opposable thumb and we have the ability to question. And when you lock in to ideology, you abandon the latter and you cannot make progress if you don't question what's going on around you. you know, I, I it, think it, you two should run for president, vice president. Uh, <laughs> Dual ballot. Be president. Uh, you know, I, people say to me... I thought me, we were just uh, talking about why bread's bad for you. We're getting yeah, deeply philosophical here. This is amazing. That's why this book is... Uh, when, I think, when we both think about it, it it's... Uh, you feel it. You feel it in your heart. You get you get chills. I mean, you know, it it, it tends to override some of our our long standing beliefs, and that's really a good thing. You know, you you would say the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. Well, you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't rise in the east. The earth is turning. The sun is just. It's not flying across the sky in a golden chariot. You know, we, we uh, suddenly you say, my gosh, that's a different perspective. I'd like to embrace that. When it comes to inflammation. We're only on your second question on five pages. Yeah, no, I got a lot. I got a a big card here. No, it's good, yeah. We got plenty of data, (laughs) plenty of data room. Uh, When it comes to inflammation and, you know, obviously we, we spent a little bit of time just touching on, you know, the high sugar, refined carbohydrates, bad fats, all of that stuff that contribute to inflammation. I'm specifically interested in inflammation as it affects the brain mm. and how in in addition to some of the poor decision-making and the feedback loops that we're kind of talking about there, what about very specific things like depression and anxiety and ADD and uh, autism spectrum and things like that? Uh, I know that in some of your work, you've indicated you've seen remarkable turnarounds from people with some of those issues just for making these changes, which essentially were just you know, limiting or, or decreasing the amount of inflammation based on lifestyle and diet. You know, what does it do if I'm, if I'm prone to depression and I wake up every day and I'm just eating donuts all day? Like what's, what's happening to me and why am I not going to get better? The story behind inflammation and the brain is something that is in constant uh, evolution. It's been expanding so rapidly in the last 10 or so years. But for me, the first, uh, I guess, concept that there might be this relationship here is in seeing patients in the hospital. And when you see patients in the hospital, especially when they're in the critical care unit, the ICU, these are people who are very sick. And you often see that their thinking is off. And I don't mean just a little off, it's really off. So ICU delirium is a very common condition. And researchers have looked into why does this happen? And what they found is that In these states of significant sickness, you would, as you would expect, have high levels of inflammation. And they can actually see that this inflammation makes its way into the brain. And so there's this idea that this sickness type behavior is something that is driven by inflammation. Now, that's just a a general model for how thinking the brain and inflammation might be connected in addition to 
all the work that that you've done linking Alzheimer's as an inflammatory condition. Uh, but the next step was to be to, to say, does inflammation cause changes in our thinking? And specifically as it relates to depression. Well, when they were looking at people treated for hepatitis, they would give them interferon. And one of the most common side effects of interferon is depression, depression type behaviors. So scientists said, well, maybe there's a link here. They took this a step further by actually injecting people with things that induce inflammation, which sounds like a lot of fun, right? But what they've done is they've given people either vaccinations, typhoid vaccination, which induces inflammation, or endotoxin, which is a technical term for a part of a bacteria that reliably increases inflammation. And what they found is in these cases, people display symptoms of depression. They have the depression phenotype, meaning they outwardly express that they are withdrawn from other people, that their mood is not as good, the traditional diagnostic criteria for depression. So this has led to, uh, in the last several years, this phenomenal understanding that depression can actually be caused by inflammation. And Again, something that I really never learned when I was in my medical training, we learned about these things as a serotonin deficiency, let's say. You have a neurotransmitter imbalance. But it never really got to the root of why is it that some people experience depression and other people do not, even when they're in the same environment, have the same things going on around them. And maybe a part of that is how much inflammation they're experiencing. So depression is a condition that is incredibly common, unfortunately, too common. And it's something that is around 300 million people worldwide uh, are experiencing depression at any given moment. It's a huge problem. But we should also think about depression, not just from the problems it creates in our social function, but it is a change in our thinking patterns. It is a change in the way that we see and approach the world. So the next piece of this then was to say, okay, depression, inflammation, change in our thinking what about how inflammation might change our, our decisions, specifically our decisions? And that's actually research that's only been published in the last year or so, where they look at how inflammatory tendencies, meaning how likely your body is to have inflammation if exposed to something that induces inflammation, how likely you are to have short-term decision-making if you have higher levels of inflammation in the body. And as it turns out, people who have higher levels of inflammatory markers are prone to being present-oriented, and that's impulsive th with their thinking, that they're more likely to take $10 today than $100 in a week. And that is such a fundamentally important message because it means that inflammation, even short-term inflammation, biases our thinking such that we favor short-term outcomes. Such a, a fundamental mechanism for us because that means by influencing our levels of inflammation, whether that's through diet or even going out into nature for a little bit, we can change our decision-making to favor these well-reasoned long-term outcomes that are so essential if we want to live lives of happiness, if we want to live lives of lasting health. Wow. Well said. You got a smart answer. kid here, man. <laughs> I'm sitting here taking it in. Yeah. I think we're both impressed. I'm like, damn, wow. You're very, very articulate. Thank you for that. Um, and then what about uh, inflammation as it pertains to brain fog? I think this is something that many of us, including myself from time to time, really struggle with of just that feeling like, God, I know I'm smarter than this, but there's like this gauze over my eyes. Um, and I get a lot of feedback from people that that's one of their main complaints. Is that 
How often is that related to... Well, I, I think as it relates to brain fog, there are so many things that have to line up for your brain to work well. And that said, if, any, if there's any missing piece of that puzzle, whether it's having um, adequate fuel, the presence of inflammation, compounding factors, toxins, et cetera, lack of sleep, et cetera, everything's got to line up so that we can do this interview right now. So we can be present and focused and be able to retrieve information. So it's, it, it isn't a, a wonder to me that, I mean, it's a wonder to me that, you know, as many people can function as well as they do when you think of all the entry points to, that can compromise thinking. Um, just one other point I wanted to add as Austin was talking is interesting that depression is associated with a slightly higher body temperature. Again, indicating that it's a sickness type of response. It's an inflammatory type of response. And, but, but getting back to what I was just saying, this notion of brain fog. So brain fog is characterized, is a characteristic of an infection, raising body temperature with the presence of these inflammatory mediators. And those inflammatory mediators, act, uh, mediators actually can antagonize or make less functional the receptors for various parts of our neurochemistry. So actually in uh, affecting how the chemistry works that has to do with nerve transmission. Beyond that, we know that inflammation through a, a specific pathway called the kynurenic acid pathway, pathway, which is some of your geeks will look that one up, or they may know about it already, um, is the pathway by which your body manufactures serotonin out of tryptophan. And when there's inflammation present, uh, tryptophan is... Um, deviated away from the production of serotonin to uh, make something called quinolinic acid, which actually antagonizes how nerves work. It actually threatens nerve conduction. So that's a very powerful relationship then between inflammation and interrupted nerve function. So, you know, when people eat the crappy food or don't get a, a good night's sleep, which affects your, your thinking, cognitive function, from other perspectives that we'll hopefully jump into, uh, or any of a number of issues, or even when you're sick and have, uh, and have a fever and you're fighting some kind of uh, infection, why you experience brain fog, why people with chronic Lyme disease, for example, one of the main things they complain of is that their thinking is fogged, that they can't put their thoughts together. It's because of this direct toxic effects of this quinolinic acid produced because of the shunting of uh, away from serotonin with the utilization of the amino acid tryptophan. So there's some pretty well-described biochemistry that addresses your question quite specifically that we can now hang our hats on. You know, will that answer be different in three years when we come back to your place here and do another interview? Hopefully it will because that'll mean we're learning new things. I just wonder how many people have been you know, mistakenly prescribed um, psychiatric medication that could have a number of different adverse side effects when it's kind of going after the wrong issue, right? Like I interviewed a, a woman named Dr. Kelly Brogan a couple of times and she's a formerly trained psychiatrist and is basically just puts people on a paleo diet and cures them of all this stuff and gets them off medication. You know, it's just, it's crazy. You, you hear her stories and you can't even believe that they're true half the time. Well, uh, Dr. Brogan's new book really does focus on the uh, the global mismanagement of depression, and she is spot on. And interestingly, after her book was published, and it's so unfortunate that this happened, there became, there was this amazing publication that really put a nail in the coffin of uh, the, the utility of these uh, 
SSRI medications that are prescribed so aggressively around the world for major depressive disorder. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, she's really quite uh, on target with the idea that, yes, there's some utility to exercise as a therapeutic intervention for depression and dietary change. I mean, there's a wonderful Rhonda Patrick podcast that talks about um, can exercise be used as a therapeutic as it relates to depression. I'm not saying, and no one would say that, yes, this is the cure for depression. But let's take a step back. Depression is not a Prozac, Paxil, uh, Selexa deficiency. It is this notion of, well, you don't have enough serotonin, so you're depressed, therefore we'll inhibit the enzyme that breaks down serotonin, you'll have more serotonin, and the world will be a better place. It just ain't so. If it were, then these patients would by and large get dramatically better when they're taking the medication. The truth of the matter is, the difference between placebo effect, which I'm not discounting, and the effectiveness of these SSRI medications is minimal. So I would say, why don't we just give them sugar pills and tell them they're going to help, but I don't want them to get sugar. So we're <laughs> got some other inert substance in there, maybe... Uh, should I say hallucinogens? I don't know. I, don't go, I know that's where we're going that's, next. Yeah, they, yeah really? did, you, the, did you cheat and look at my notes? <laughs> really, is that after the interview? No. <laughs> but uh, having said that, uh, I, I think that uh, you know what Austin was saying earlier, that we have to take a step back and look at where we are today at the time of this interview, mechanistically in terms of what's going on with depression. And when we do that, we realize we can begin to target the cause, not the manifestation. We can look at the fire, not the smoke. And it's so interesting when I use that metaphor because fire in Latin is inflammare. That's where the word inflammation comes from. And in a very real sense, that's what we're targeting, inflammation. The cornerstone of not just depression, but coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, it's inflammation. And now inflammation in brainwash is the cornerstone mechanism of disconnection syndrome. What is disconnecting us from that part of the brain that is our gift as humans, the part of the brain that allows us to be planning for the future, to be compassionate towards each other, to be compassionate towards the planet. That's what we're trying to reestablish connection to. And I'm sorry I ended a sentence on a preposition. I, my fourth grade <laughs> English teacher is still looking at me saying, don't end a sentence in a preposition. I, I would have never noticed. <laughs> that's a lesson for me. So that that's a great segue then into, I'd like to kind of get into some of the anatomy of the brain, A, but before doing so, perhaps stepping back from the inflammation issue, dietary and lifestyle choices that we make as they pertain to things like depression, anxiety, other you know, disorders of, of that type, how much of it is perhaps just you know, unresolved trauma and more of this, the psycho-spiritual angle? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, in other words, it's like I could be eating very clean, anti-inflammatory diet, exercising, human connection, all that stuff. And if I've never looked at you know, childhood trauma and things that I experienced, those could manifest as something like depression or anxiety or other, other disorders. Where does that kind of fit in there to you guys? This is a really important point that you bring up. And part of the way that we've studied trauma is through the question of stress or the discussion of stress. There was a 2018 paper where researchers from both Penn and MIT looked at these children aged four to seven and they polled their parents to find out 
had these children had significant childhood traumas, things like divorce or significant illness. And what they found is that the more childhood trauma these kids had, the less the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. The connection pattern had been disrupted seemingly by that trauma. And that disconnection was linked to higher levels of aggressive behavior. So what does this mean when it comes to maybe adults? Well, we know that stress seems to do this in adulthood as well. There have been a series of really fascinating studies coming out of a Yale researcher named Amy Arnstein that demonstrate how stress, and again, we can use traumas, but stress, it compromises the pathway, the connection between the part of your brain that gives you the ability to calm yourself down and the amygdala that holds on to that fear, that holds on to that trauma, that reactivates these patterns that bring you into this scared state. So when it comes to early life traumas, we're not exactly sure how much long-term interventions in adulthood change what happened early on. But what we do know is that you can change what is happening in the present. And as it pertains to chronic stress, that means that lowering chronic stress, lowering these sources of chronic stress in your life is probably one of the most significant things that you can do to get yourself out of this loop where you're constantly reacting from this emotionally reactive perspective, from this impulsive perspective. And when we get into the neuroanatomy of this, it'll uh, make this a little bit more clear. But your point is very well taken, which is what is trauma doing to our brain? And what can we do to lower this trauma that children are having early on in life? And that's obviously a much bigger conversation, but I think it is essential to the bigger picture of how do we get people to have happier, more enjoyable lives. And one of the ways is addressing sources of childhood trauma. And then as we age, to have interventions for adults to help them to manage perhaps what had happened earlier on in life, but more specifically to decrease sources of modern day unnecessary stress that disables our connection to the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, along those lines of what Austin just said, um, we have the ability then to reconnect uh, to the prefrontal cortex and distance ourselves from this uh, aggressive connection to the amygdala that, that, as he pointed out, is fostered by early life trauma. I mean, there's no going back, but um, the Dalai Lama said, the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. So it means that our moment-to-moment choices in terms of what we pay attention to has a role to play in how our brains are then rewired moving forward. We call that neuroplasticity. So if we choose to concentrate on those lifestyle choices that are helping us connect to better parts of the brain, we can distance ourselves and that those connections related to early life trauma can wither on the vine because they've not been nurtured. We can nurture connection to the peripheral cortex by engaging in acts of empathy, by allowing our bodies to nurture the whole notion of neuroplasticity. How do we do that? We increase our body's ability to make new pathways and connections by increasing the production of a particular chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF. How do we do that? We do that with exercise. That is the, the miracle grove that allows these connections to happen. So we set the stage for this neuroplasticity to happen by exercising, by consuming DHA, by uh, whole coffee fruit extract, turmeric, various ways. And then we take advantage of that fertile soil 
by engaging in acts of gratitude, expressing our gratitude, acts of empathy, not just for each other, but empathy for your future self. That's another person. The, the Luke who's going to sit in this chair in 10 years, you can be empathetic towards that person and do right by that person based upon the choices you decide to leverage today. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, the neuroplasticity piece uh, to me is something I'm extremely fascinated with now because it's even in my life, I'm 49 in my lifetime, it's like the brain you got and the injuries that you know you took on as a kid, you're, that's just you and you're going to be an alcoholic and die a miserable death. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And, and now we're realizing that there are ways in which we can actually kind of build a new brain. And I think that's just so exciting. So it's, it's my current obsession of like looking into every known modality uh, to help facilitate that. I recently, um, last week, interviewed uh, Dr. Daniel Amen down in Orange County. And he took some scans of my brain. He said, you, your brain's in really bad shape you know, eat fish oil, do hyperbaric <laughs> oxygen, et cetera. And I was like, well, yeah, but what about the neuroplasticity? Like, how do I get that moving? He's like, all right, you ready for this? You're going to have to play a sport. And I was like, I hate sports. Uh, and he said, you got to play table tennis every exactly. day. You know? he, I'm like, I really? keep challenging uh, Dan and his wife uh, to, to play ping pong because yeah. he's real into it. In fact, the last time I was with him was out here in California. And uh, at that time, uh, we were remodeling our garage and I was so happy to tell him, BTW, we've got, as you know, Austin, we we put the ten, uh, table tennis in based on what he said. And yeah. it's really true because it, it clearly is hand-eye, but I'm not sure for neuroplasticity. I think we're looking, with all due respect, and Dan's a very close friend, uh, we really want, if we're going to amplify that, we really want more aerobic and some resistance exercise. To got it. If you're, if you're looking at the raw uh, upregulation of BDNF, so if we're if we're priming the brain through you know different forms of exercise, movement, et cetera, hand eye coordination, and we're priming it for neuroplasticity, where we want to get in there and do some work and kind of rewire things and make neurons new ones fire together and wire together in positive ways that are going to reflect a positive outcome. Once we've sort of set the stage and we've lowered inflammation and we're good to go, and the brain's like, all right, tell me what to do. What are some modalities like something like EMDR comes to mind or um, psychedelics or all sorts of things that are kind of, you know, becoming popular now to actually start to change the way that your brain operates? Well, I, I think that if you're, again, creating that fertile ground, then to take advantage of neuroplasticity, then you engage in those activities that you want your brain to be adept at doing. And that means doing your best to connect to other people, to try to look at new things and see things through different perspectives. Now, can that be uh, augmented and bypassed through uh, the use of psychedelics? You know, that's, that's certainly a conversation that we could have. But I think for the general population, the, um, at least where we are today in terms of accessibility to these modalities, uh, the, the broad message would be, yes, in, enhance your neuroplasticity by physical exercise, maybe use a little turmeric in your cooking, take some DHA, take some fish oil, and then do good things. Do things that you think are where you want your brain to go, not necessarily where you might see your brain today. But Austin, you probably... <laughs> well, I was just going to say that your brain's going to get good at whatever you're doing. So if you are practicing a sport, it will get better at letting you do the sport. If you're becoming good at becoming stressed, 
your brain is going to be good at being stressed. If you're constantly watching stressful news, your brain's going to set itself up so it does the best job possible at being as stressed as possible. Then the question becomes, what is it that you are putting into your brain? Because your brain is going to reflect what you put into it. So in theory, that means let's look at all these things in my life that I would like to improve. And those are going to be different for individual people. What we do in Brainwash is provide a package which allows people to then have the ability to choose the things they want and then stick to them. But you may be somebody who really enjoys getting coffee with friends. That should be what you focus on and really double down on making that happen. If you keep doing it, that will become a pattern in your brain. As opposed to your pattern is every Thursday night eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Now, Ben and Jerry's is delicious. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But if you continuously are setting yourself up for that, that will be what your brain expects. It will be good at remembering that and reminding you every time Thursday, 5 p.m. rolls around, this is what we do. The key then becomes how do you break out of that cycle so that you can decide what are the things I want to be doing? And that requires what are called executive functions. Executive functions are a core manifestation of the ability of the prefrontal cortex. This is things like allowing you to block out things that might, uh, I guess, cause you to be impulsive. This is cognitive flexibility. This is attentional control. These are so key in allowing us to make good decisions. In Brainwash, we talk about the things that have been shown in studies to improve executive functions, which when implemented will give you the opportunity to make those decisions. What are the things in my life I want to be doing more and less of? But you can't just force yourself to say, I want to do more of this and expect that that will stick. The way I describe this is, imagine you were sitting at a table, there's a donut and an apple in front of you. You'd like to think you can just force yourself to eat the apple. That doesn't work. The donut is delicious. So you need to design a brain that says, actually, you know what? I'm better off not eating that donut. And the way to do that is sequentially adding in these factors like nature exposure, like meditation, like time spent with other people that build your brain up to that point. This is what is so important. You need to design a brain that lets you make the good decisions in the first place. And then you can have whatever it is that you like to do that you would like to do more of. Those things will fall into place. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. You might have guessed from listening to this show that I'm kind of a busy guy, man. I'm flying around the world producing this content for you, interviewing all these fascinating people. So when I'm home, I really don't have time to grocery shop or cook. And even if I could, I suck at it. So I'm not going to enjoy my own cooking. Enter my friends over at Sakara, today's show sponsor, who've got an incredible menu of creative chef-crafted breakfasts, lunch, and dinners that change weekly so I don't get sick of them. And it's delivered super fresh anywhere in the U.S. But along with delicious meals, Sakara's also got daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support the delicious food that they're going to bring to your house. To boost results, I'm going to give you a little tip here. Try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, which is an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, etc. It's really good stuff. And Sakara is kind of famous now. They've received rave reviews from Vogue, Goop, and the New York Times. They're kind of awesome. They've also been on the podcast, of course, on episode 206. You might have heard that. So if you want to get in on this action, here's what you do. Go to Sakara.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A, Sakara.com slash Luke. And guess what? You're going to get 20% off your first order. That's Sakara.com slash Luke. 
to save 20% off these delicious organic meals delivered right to your house. And now back to the interview. Austin, what do you have to say about how this might fit into the addiction model? I think your dad brings up a great point with, you know, sending people that make bad decisions to prison as it pertains to things like alcoholism and drug addiction. What's your take on that? And what are some perhaps a direction that we could go to help people that are suffering from those afflictions? Well, we're now understanding that addiction is a problem with the prefrontal cortex, that Addiction conditions are where we're not able to make those good decisions that come from that top-down prefrontal control. Again, addictions and are so linked to poor decisions. And we know now that we can do things to support better decision-making. But putting people into jail, let's say, cutting them off from their social support, these are not things that anyone would say are good for helping our brains to make better decisions. Ideally, we would have a model where we supported people with the types of things we're describing in our book, give them access to social support, to good food, to nature, to good quality sleep. These are the things that improve decision-making. And by the way, sleep problems have been linked to basically every type of psychopathology that we know of. And if we want to support a brain that thinks things through, but also is in a healthy state because there is such a significant overlap between poor mental states and addictive behaviors, we really need to be thinking about all of the things in the milieu that creates the best environment for good decision-making. Bottom line here, putting people away for a certain amount of time doesn't seem to be in the best interest of improving their decision-making other than just having them be more scared of making bad decisions in the long run. And we know fear is an amygdala-based mechanism, that fear is a stress and amygdala response which again, keeps us emotionally reactive and from making good decisions. It really doesn't make sense. So this is, you know, being in an environment like that is perpetuating this limbic system trauma loop, right? So you're a kid who's perhaps experienced trauma. Your coping mechanism has been to adopt various addictions to kind of self-medicate, self-soothe. That becomes pathological to the point where now you don't have the power to stop. So you start making poor decisions and you get incarcerated and now you're put back into a system that's going to further perpetuate that same limbic system response. It's, it's crazy. I don't know what the solution is exactly. I mean, I feel grateful that I was able to get out and I'm you know, doing everything possible to uh, ensure that I never go back, not to prison, but just in well, you know, active ha- having, addiction. Having heard you say that, what do you think was uh, tipped you over and allowed you to finally break the cycle? Well, abject hopelessness to the point of being beaten into uh, at least some degree of humility and open-mindedness to be willing to consider that there is some higher power in existence in our known universe. And that if I could surrender my will to that power, that perhaps it could help me when I couldn't help myself. So it took like, it took, it took the cognizant awareness that like, wow, no matter how hard I try, I can't break out of this. And that took a lot of trying till I finally admitted defeat. And then literally like what happened for me, it's, it sounds like it can't even be true, but I literally just, check myself into a rehab, ask them what to do, you know, the next day, cause I was going to wake up with no drugs. And uh, they said, well, you, you just have to pray. <laughs> you know, and I was like, pray. I didn't grow up with religion or spirituality or anything. That was very foreign to me. So what does prayer do? 
It's a rhetorical question. I'll tell you what it does. Yeah, yeah, please do. There's but a wonderful it, book, uh, How God Can Change Your Brain, written by a Dr. Andrew Newberg. Ooh, we got to put that in the show notes. And uh, it's a terrific book. And what Dr. Newberg demonstrates is that prayer is one of the most powerful things that we can do to connect to the prefrontal cortex. That prayer... What? ...literally brings decision-making back online. It connects us... It's powerful uh, in terms of reconnection. So what you do when you pray is you're lighting up the prefrontal cortex and you're finally letting the amygdala calm down. So the, finally, you're bringing the adult back into the room. Now, you can call the adult by any specific name if you want. If it's a directed type of prayer, give that uh, a name. But what you're doing from, as you were asking about the neuroanatomy or, or more specifically neurophysiology here, is you're bringing back the decision-making part to make better decisions. How God Can Change Your Brain by Dr. Andrew Newberg. Wow, that's fascinating. University of Pennsylvania. I guess you could take that in one of two ways that, I mean, it could be kind of a God placebo thing where you're altering the chemistry of your brain just by believing that there is something to believe in. And you know what? I don't care. <laughs> Me either. I really don't care because you're sitting here right now yeah. because that happened. So, yeah. you know, I'm I'm all in. Yeah, I am too. I mean, to me, I, I think it's both. It's it's both. It's I, yeah, I, I like talking you know? to my colleagues and, and we'll say something about whatever, diet, nutrition, lifestyle change. And they'll say, oh, that's that's just the placebo effect. Who cares? You got your response, didn't you? That patient's experiencing less depression, less anxiety, making better choices. I don't care if it's a placebo effect. Works for me. Right. So getting into then the, the different um, parts of our brain here and how they work, I think it's a great way to kind of segue into that. So if one is experiencing what we call in our common vernacular now being triggered, right? Like so you know, someone bumps into my car or, you know, fight with your significant other, whatever. And you're having this overreaction that is completely inappropriate to the situation that's going on and is more likely due to something that you've experienced in the past. Because I understand it, that that memory then would have, you know, you got bullied, say, as a kid and your amygdala got, got hurt or imprinted with that. And now girlfriend, husband, whomever is making a comment to you and you experience that as that bullying again. And now you're reacting as you were on the schoolyard with those bullies, you know, giving you a snuggie or whatever the hell they were doing. Right. <laughs> and so in, in inserting then that prayer then, and it having given you the ability to calm down or get back into the free frontal cortex and out of the amygdala, how much of that can we like self-direct and self-regulate once we have a, a knowledge of how that mm. works? And is that playing with neuroplasticity or is it, that a different... It absolutely is. And let me, let me two, tell you two things that come to mind. First of all, what's happening when you have that experience is you're activating what's called an engram. You, you're all of a sudden lighting up a certain pattern of response and behavior based upon the previous experience. And here is a, a wonderful example of people activating an engram. Watch somebody walking down the street, talking on their cell phone, and what are they doing? They're using their hands. The per they're not FaceTiming, holding uh, their phone up to their ear, are they? They're talking, and they're saying, oh, it was way over there, and I was, I was, I'll be home at 5 o'clock, whatever it is. So they're activating an engram that is based on previous conversations with people when using your hands to describe something was effective, like I'm doing with you right now. But people do this on the phone. It's, it's, 
it, it happens. It's like scratching your dog's belly, and what will it do? It'll its leg will start to move. We all know because you're activating that engram. Similarly, uh, I was in, and I talk about this in Brainwash. I was in a Costco, and um, we were in line, and <laughs> my wife had forgotten something, and went to the. Uh, back to find whatever while we're still in line to get that thing. And when she returned, and I feel it right now, the guy behind us in line uh, had a hissy fit. And I don't mind that he had the hissy fit, but he started to verbally abuse my wife. Oh. And my amygdala lit up. I mean, <laughs> and I felt it. And I just, uh, I almost lost it. We've all been there, right? Yeah. And... I luckily, as I, and I talk about this in the book, I brought the adult back into the room and didn't do anything uh, that I shouldn't have. Uh, took the deep breath and, you know, we, we, what is it? You count to 10. What are you instructed to do? I didn't do anything specific except for take the deep breath and walked away from it. But um, that's the neuroplasticity that you can take advantage of, the ability to, uh, again, rein in that impulsive reaction and make the, make a better decision. Not that the amygdala-based decisions are bad always, because they are not. And I want to make this point that the amygdala allows for us to make an, a sudden, immediate re, uh, response when uh, oftentimes uh, it's bad, uh, when we have to fire off a tweet because somebody did wink, looked at us funny or said something on television, whatever. Uh, but when we're, let's say, backing out of our driveway and there's a kid on a tricycle that you see in the rearview mirror, you're not going to think, well, prefrontal cortex, maybe I ought to just take my foot off the gas right now, <laughs> put it on the brake. and right. Because then if I do that, the long-term outcome will be that this kid's going to uh, not get run over by the car and grow up to be, uh, you know, what happens is you make a bam, foot on the brake, done, story over, kid's fine. Right, that's the upside of the amygdala. We so, you know, vis-a-vis -vis our conversation from today, we don't want to, you know, castigate uh, the amygdala uh, fully. Nor do we want to say that inflammation is necessarily all bad. It's all about uh, what's appropriate and what is ultimately the best for us. And isn't the difference between having a healthy functional mind and a dysfunctional mind, and as a result, a personality? your ability to know thyself and to know that you're safe now, the kid's gone by. And so now your amygdala can settle back down. Just, you know, it's like when you watch an animal in the wild, like you startle a deer and they freak out and run away. And then 10 seconds later, they're over there just nibbling on grass like nothing ever happened. But you cut me off in traffic or you insult me on social media, that amygdala fires up, I'm full of adrenaline and cortisol, and now I can't stop it. Now it's like I've become addicted to that. Again, uh, what the Dalai Lama said, we, you know, uh, what we choose to do, uh, our, how we choose to form our brains reflects the life we lead. And that will then influence your perspective moving forward. If you're constantly enhancing your connection to the amygdala, you ultimately won't ever shut off. I mean, somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're pissed and you carry that for the rest of the day and it never ends. Then you watch the news. Oh, that politician said this and oh, my neighbor didn't cut the hedge and you just go, you know, everything's a rumpf. Do you think that it's possible that some people are in a low level um, amygdala activation ongoing and that could lead to things like 
you know, acute chemical sensitivity and EMF sensitivity and things like this of this nature, where you're, you're in kind of a low grade fight or flight nervous system response all the time without it necessarily manifesting in a temper tantrum, but you're just kind of like always on edge. Well, this is actually what chronic stress seems to do. Back to this idea of what is it the amygdala does in our brain. I think of it, well, it is a threat response system. It's an alarm system in our brain. And that alarm system can be set to a different level of sensitivity. Depending on your life experiences and depending on what you do to modulate that level of sensitivity, that alarm system can be blaring every five minutes, waking you up from sleep, going off every time somebody cuts you off in traffic, or it can be relatively less sensitive. And that means that you're not too bothered if somebody was to shove you. So the question would be then, what is it that promotes that alarm system being more active more of the time, being too sensitive, let's say? And it seems that one of the key factors in that is that chronic stress. It is how you are responding to the world around you. Things that increase chronic stress could be anything from watching stressful news, could be stressful relationships, could be a stressful job. But these things all come together to increase, literally increase the neurons, uh, the connections and the neurons in the amygdala to make it the part that governs more of your day-to-day life. Simultaneously, we know that the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, as we said, is really critical to this. So coming back to that Uh, let's say alarm mechanism. The analogy that I like is the one I was telling you about last night, dad, but this whole, you have a child in a bedroom who is worried about the monsters under the bed. It's convinced there are monsters under the bed. That child is not getting any sleep. That child is going to be petrified throughout the night. That's when the prefrontal cortex, the adult can come into the room and say, hey, let's take a look. There's nothing there. We all good? And the kid says, we're all good. And everyone gets a good night's sleep. So it's both these two things. It's one, bringing down the sensitivity, the overactivation of the amygdala. And then the other is fostering a stronger connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And how do you do these things? Well, it's things like meditation. It's things like getting enough sleep. It's things that by virtue of lowering our stress, for example, getting out into nature for 20 minutes once a week, which has been shown to lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol, even in urban settings, these are things that we can start doing to lower that amygdala reactivity and making us less likely to jump up every time there's a scary noise on the TV or to, again, be concerned every time somebody cuts in front of us in traffic, which I imagine living in LA would be of major benefit. That's when I knew I was starting to make spiritual progress is when I became a chill driver. Yeah. You know, there's a certain threshold where I just, everyone drive however you want. And I'm just having a great time. And everyone else is like, God, the traffic in LA. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm having a wonderful time. Well, you, know? you, you bring up spirituality and meditation <laughs> is one of the most powerful tools that we have to dampen down that emotional reactivity of the amygdala and to connect those two parts of the brain. So it could be a spiritual journey. It could be more of a secular journey, but that's why we're so big on mindfulness and meditation. These are practices that help to calm everything down such that you're not immediately reacting to every concerning stimuli around you, which given the context of our modern lives can be a lot of potential problems. And that was the input that changed that for me, actually, specifically was really getting serious about meditation. Um, In terms of neuroplasticity and specifically neurogenesis, like growing new neurons that weren't there before. Have either of you seen any compelling research that would indicate 
micro or macro dosing things like psilocybin, LSD, et cetera, would have any benefit toward that end. Because <laughs> I, I ask some pretty smart people this, this, and sometimes they're like, oh yeah, I have the studies and da, da, da. And I asked Eamon about it. He's like, oh no, drugs give you brain damage. I would never do any of that. And I was like, wow, that it seems like there's a lot of proponents for it. Um, well, I'd say that... Um we're probably a little bit uh, more um, liberal-minded than than uh, Dan uh, in the, in this particular area, uh, and we'd be delighted to ch- Dan's again. I've mentioned before a good friend, but it, we have different views, I think, on this. And uh, I think that you know, there's certainly um, developing literature. I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's robust as yet, but there is ongoing research developing literature that indicates, uh, you know, some really powerful effects of the use of psilocybin uh, and uh, MDMA and MDMA as well in terms of, uh, dare I say, jumpstarting this whole approach in terms of making connections to the bigger picture, enhancing access to those parts of the brain's brain that allow then... Uh, you know, different perspectives. So I think we're, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, until quite recently, that research was extremely uh, difficult to be available to researchers because the material was uh, was very unavailable. But now we're seeing that it's seeing a resurgence. Now, I, I th- you know, at the risk of um, having any of your listeners or viewers think that, well, therefore they're going to, you know, get some mushrooms and, and take care of the problems. I, I think that that's short-sighted and, uh, narrow-minded. I think that you know what we're seeing are um, studies carried out by professionals in a clinical setting that are having significantly positive results as it relates to depression and PTSD. I mean, uh, in particular. I mean, I think many of your viewers and listeners, I'm sure, are aware of that literature. So, um, I think this is an evolving story that we need to watch very closely because I think there's some, from the looks of it, some very potentially powerful therapeutic benefits to be seen moving forward. Do you have anything on that? I think I'd echo those sentiments. When you look at where research is for psilocybin and MDMA, I would say when it comes to MDMA, looking at how that may suppress amygdalar function, increase oxytocin, and increase the functional connectivity between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, that integration... Uh, That kind of makes sense in the context of what are we using this for right now? And we're using it for PTSD, which is very much an amygdalar disease. So I won't comment any further on that at this time, but I think that there is a lot of potential for exploration in this realm. And of course, would advocate for continued scientific exploration in these different uh, medicines. Let let me just uh, comment... uh on the just the notion of how we can affect the amygdala 2008 study that looked at using a mindfulness program in people who rated themselves per, uh, fairly high in terms of stress but were otherwise healthy and the the study demonstrated number 1 that their over the 8 week program uh their ratings on uh stress declined dramatically and number 2 as these individuals were imaged using sophisticated MRI studies the density of the amygdala was significantly reduced in correlation with their degree of stress reduction as brought on by the meditation program so it changes your brain uh, getting back to what we talked about, Andrew Newberg's book, it changes your brain. Uh, getting back to the quote for the Dalai Lama, so we can we can restructure, we can rebuild, we can rewire 
our brains, that is pretty darn empowering. From my perspective, uh, you know, again, in my age, um, you know, back in medical school in the day, we were told that your brain never grew new, new neurons. That was no chance of that. Every beer you had was 80,000 neurons. That was what we were told. Anyway. That was part of the just say no movement too. I remember when, <laughs> I, I, when I was in junior high, it was like, you know, if you smoke weed, it, it fries brain cells that never come back and this right, kind of and stuff. You're finished you know? and you're going to have chromosomal damage yeah. too. But uh, Yeah, so, that was part of the propaganda. Oh, I <laughs> They used to say that it would, it would uh, make us male teens grow boobs if you smoked pot. There were like posters <laughs> I, in doctor's offices and stuff. in the mirror. Who came up with that? <laughs> so far, so good. So, <laughs> oh, no, but that's it. I mean, we were told we never grew new neurons. Uh, and the, you know, the other thing is that our DNA, our genes were locked in a glass case and they determined everything about you. And now we recognize, as a matter of fact, we do grow new neurons. And number two, that every one of our lifestyle choices influences our gene expression moment to moment. And that can be uh, worrisome or it can be empowering. This whole field of epigenetics, looking at how we can make certain choices to amplify gene expression or suppress gene expression. Wow, we hold the keys to the kingdom in our hands. That's exciting. I, I would absolutely echo that. My feeling is that we can be the conscious architects of our brains and that is an unbelievable ability that we can't, uh, we can't forsake. This is, it, it's essential. It is the key to our ability to realize lives that are the lives we want them to be. But we have to take back the keys to our brains. We have to start making the decisions that set up our brains for the lives that we want. And we can't outsource that to other people who may or may not actually have our best interests at heart. That is fundamentally why we wrote the book. Because we've realized, and I think that your audience is quite aware of the fact, that there are these powerful efforts to take that away from us, that our decision-making is being sold to the highest bidder whenever we're online or even in public, that there are these you know, obvious efforts to take our decision-making away from us. A, be aware of it. That's what part one of our book is about, is being aware of these efforts. And B, then how do we regain control? How do we put ourselves back in charge of our decision-making? When it comes to having some um, you know, license over how our brain operates and activating different parts of it and down-regulating other parts of it, where does the pineal gland play into this for either of you? you know, I've, I've been you know, rather new agey for a long time and I've done a lot of kundalini yoga and, and psychedelics and plant medicines and all that kind of stuff. And from that standpoint, the pineal gland is you know, the third eye and you're where spiritual perception comes from and things like that. But then you have a guy like Joe Dispenza who's not doing any drugs or any funny business and is having you essentially do these kind of yogic practices and activate these metabolites of different types of melatonin coming from your pineal gland. And people are having these psychedelic experiences just by breathing and moving their body and whatnot. So I'm very fascinated with that particular part of the brain right now. So I think that uh, we can get some information from a couple of sources. First, as far as Joe Dispenza goes, you know, he was one of the early uh, pioneers in, in sort of this whole field, you know, writing books about how our actions are effective in changing our brains and, uh, you know, really for, was one of the uh, early ones to let us know that we can, as Austin said, be architects of our future brains. So, uh, 
you know, kudos to him for, for being that trailblazer. Uh, what do we know about people who have had their pineal glands removed? You know, typically there's people who have developed what's called a pinealoma and therefore as part of, you know, they have surgery that splits the hemispheres of the brain from the back, goes in and grabs the, the pineal gland. You know, the, their clinical manifestations, I think, are uh, unusual. Uh, there is some dysregulation of sleep. Uh, there is, as you mentioned, you know, some uh, issues that relate to production of, of uh, melanin uh, and, uh, and certainly uh, melatonin as well, I think has, has a downstream effect. But I don't know that there, uh, that necessarily, and, and I, I could be wrong, but necessarily there are ways then on the upper, other side of the coin of, of being able to necessarily upregulate or enhance the action of the pineal. I don't know. I mean, I think that, that dates back to you know, some uh, spiritual practices that have looked at that part of the brain and their concentration, but is it really the effect of changing the action of the pineal gland? I'm, I'm not sure. What we do know is that the pineal does seem to play a role in immune function and that uh, lowered level of pineal uh, activity that may happen when we are dis-synchronous uh, with uh day and night cycling may be in, involved in some of the ways that our immune function uh, would be then dysregulated by virtue of our lack of being in sync with, uh, you know, chronobiology. There's also, um, you know, in the more new age circles, this concept that um, the um, pineal gland gets calcified due to the fluoridation of the water, et cetera. And this is, again, is not something I've ever seen any proof for, but I did ask someone who's cut open a lot of brains, Dr. Jack Cruz, about that. And I said, is that really true? I mean, you, you open brains up. He's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone's brains are or that part of the brain is um, calcified, but he described it not like a hard plaque, like the calcium on your sink, but sort of a sludge that is prevalent there. And more so on people that are from countries where most of the water is fluoridated and they've been drinking fluoridated water. Do you think there's any correlation to that? I think there may be some correlation, but it doesn't beget causation. And I would further tell you that even in the very early days of x-ray, when there were the beginnings of x-raying the brain and even beyond that doing more sophisticated testing like pneumoencephalogram, uh, in older people, the pineal gland calcifies. Now on CAT scan, when that became uh, a thing, originally called an EMI scan, EMI, because it was developed by the Electronic Music in, uh, Incorporated, EMI. Actually, oh, really? Actually, so we can thank the Beatles for CAT no scans. Way. Yes, we can. Uh, in the day when these things were actually shot onto a Polaroid film and we opened the Polaroid film and there was the image of the brain, which we would look at that and go, we're looking into the brain, amazing. And looking at that center dot that was white between the hemispheres, that would be calcification of the pineal gland. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I can't say that I'm aware that fluoridation of water is causing that because, again, we've seen that in really old x-rays of the brain as well. Uh, before that, that would have been common practice. Interesting. Well, fluoridation uh, you know, became really widespread, I think, in the 1950s and certainly in the 1960s, when they were looking to find uh, some way of utilizing the fluoride that was generated as a byproduct of creating industrial agricultural chemicals. And they were saying, oh, we all this fluoride, what should we do? And somebody said, well, let's just put it in the water because it'll make everybody's teeth stronger. So there you go. <laughs> oh, the folly of man. And then, uh, you know, I'm sure you, well, you may or may not be aware of the more conspiratorial side of the fluoridation of the water in that it 
tends to make people more dim and dulled down and, and manageable as a populace. So there are those that say that it's been put into place by the powers that be for that purpose and that those powers would never drink that water in their own home or give it to their own kids. Right now, my prefrontal cortex <laughs> is saying, "Is saying, don't comment. Don't comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beauty of me being the wacky host is I get to comment and you guys can play it safe. You know, Sometimes I play devil's advocate and people go along and sometimes they don't. So we'll leave that one there. Uh, I wanted to ask about um, what role the cerebellum has in all this, because it seems to be a part of the brain that's largely ignored. And I recently interviewed a gentleman um, which, whose show will have come out, Winford Door, and he developed a program called Zing Performance, and he helps adults and children with learning disabilities and autism and all sorts of things by developing these sort of, yeah, I don't want to call them games, but using neuroplasticity essentially um, through an interface on your computer to activate the cerebellum and get it going again. And, and he believes that this is kind of a missing link that's often overlooked. Where do, what role does that part of the brain play and how can we uh, you know, bring it back online? Well, I think the cerebellum is a certainly very um, amenable uh, I wonder if Amenable came from Dan Amen. That's the play on his name, <laughs> Amenable. There you go, Dan. Uh, to the, the notion of neuroplasticity, not as, not just in the folia or the uh, the the part of the, uh, the the cerebellum itself, but in its connections uh, to other motor areas uh, and coordination areas and uh, sensory areas in the, in the parietal cortex in coordinating movement. So I think that there is plenty of room for uh, validating. Uh, interventions that are designed for um, enhancing motor activity based on this whole notion of neuroplasticity as it relates to the the cerebellum. Uh, It's really a beautiful part of the brain. Cerebellum means little brain. But when you look at the cerebellum, when you slice it uh, in a a cadaveric specimen, it is... It's called the arbor vita, the, the, the tree of life, because you should see this beautiful tree of the cortex then sort of looks like cauliflower, which I think really reminds me of a brain or cerebellum. So it's really, a I don't know how this is going to sound on your uh, podcast, but it's really a beautiful part of the brain to dissect if you, uh, if, if that's, so if in that's my earlier thing. life, it's my, it was my thing. I, I, um, I spent a year um, dissecting uh, human brains um, to uh, in, in a, my different lifetime, but it was we were writing a book at the time uh, on my, what's called microsurgical anatomy of the brain, where the operating microscope had just been developed by a company called Zeiss in Switzerland, allowing neurosurgeons to do much more technical work in the brain than they had ever been able to do, but they didn't have a roadmap. So our lab decided that we would create that roadmap, and we started taking parts of the brain uh, uh, and looking at them under the microscope and mapping them, which was kind of kind of uh, cool. But um, I would say that uh, as a, I was a, when I began the project, I was a junior in college, and um, when the, on my first day on the job, I remember I went to get the brain to start my work, and they said, "Oh, the brains are down in the morgue." I was at a hospital, and I said, "Okay, that makes sense in the morgue." I went down to, to the morgue with my cart. And I went in and uh, walked into the morgue and what was in the morgue, but a bunch of uh, dead bodies. And I walked in there and uh, I said to the deaner, the deaner is the man who takes care of the morgue, uh, I, I'm here. I'm here for the brains. Uh, could you give them to me now so I can do my studies? And he said, the brains are in the head. And I said, 
okay, uh, gotcha. And I said, okay, well, so where can I get those brains? He said, well, and he handed me a craftsman saw no like he used way. to cut the this is, this is rough time oh, that you used to cut the limbs off of a tree in your backyard well uh <laughs> next thing you know i'm sawing away uh it wasn't opening the skull because we i didn't know but we were gonna do that upstairs the, the purpose of the craft why am i telling this story <laughs> i love this story <laughs> please don't stop this is amazing the purpose so uh it was to cut the actually cut the head off. So I'm sawing away. Oh at the my neck god, and, dude! Oh my gosh! And so it's a crazy story. <laughs> I so I cut. Why am I telling you this? Because anyway, it's an amazing story. I you cut the heads say off. This. You should open all podcast interviews oh with gosh, this story. I've never told this on a podcast. Anyway, I cut off three heads. It was, and I, I was, you know, I was a very much a. a, a uh, freshman at this experience and because i remember the first one i did i was sawing across the neck and the, the head was no it was not going back and forth and i'm thinking why am i doing this because i've got to do this study and so i took the heads finally which were surprisingly heavy i never realized how heavy they were put them in a big garbage bag put them on the cart and wheeled them i was in the basement of the hospital to the elevator i'm in the elevator and uh, getting ready to go up to the lab, which was on the fourth floor. And, but just as I was ready, as the doors were closing, a young woman was going by with a cart of laboratory rats. And the cart was in the basement of the hospital. There were grates. There wasn't a, a floor. It was great so that they could hose it down. And her cart had gotten stuck with the wheels in the grates. So being the gallant individual that I, she was really cute. Anyway, she got these rats. She looked at, and it was wearing anyway. This, I ran out to help her, leaving the cart with the heads behind in the <laughs> elevator, which then was the same elevator that goes to the lobby of the hospital and up to the waiting rooms and all. Oh my gosh, the doors closed behind me. And I dive uh, at the last second and stick my arm into the door, the door is open. And I, I mean, can you imagine what would have happened had I not been able to keep those doors from closing in that cart? Oh, what a moment. But anyway, uh, it took me a while to, to settle down from that one. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so then we, of course, learned how to extricate the brains from the heads. And I began my research and uh, it was really fascinating to be pursuing the microsurgical anatomy of the human brain in a way that had never been done before and to then create this roadmap that is used to this day. Uh, I mean, I can tell because people still cite uh, the references from our work that people are, are using for that anatomy. So that was, that was early on. I guess it was 19. Yes, 19. Years of age. Oh, oh you were 19. <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for 1975. No. Oh, you were nineteen. I was doing nineteen. That? Oh, that's crazy. Hey, 19, yeah. Wow. Are you? Are you? Austin? Are you stoked? Med school's come a long way in its sophistication, or I has haven't, it? <laughs> haven't had to cut off any heads in the most recent past. Um, medical school has made changes, and one of the things that I'm still quite bothered by, though, is the rampant rates of burnout and depression and anxiety and even suicide in medical students, in residents, and in practicing physicians. So while there have been some incredible advancements as far as the curriculum and the knowledge base that people are bestowed, there's still so far to go as far as the things that we're talking about right now that are essential to, I don't know, happiness. We know that people who have time to sleep, 
who are able to spend time with their friends and family who get outside, who are able to exercise, do better. They have more enjoyable lives. And yet those things are are all taken away from medical trainees, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Because at the end of the day, I, I believe that as providers, we're trying to help patients optimize for happiness, for lives of happiness, as much joy, purpose, meaning, and yes, health for as long as possible. And so there's this strange hypocrisy where we don't allow medical trainees themselves to experience those things, where we take away all the things that we know are associated with living lives of joy. So that's, I guess, a separate topic, but something that I feel strongly about, which is why if we say these things are important, are we not letting the people who are supposed to be the strongest advocates for this to have the lives where they get to enjoy health and happiness? Amazing. I think that's a great statement to make. And those of you running universities listening, please take heed. And, you know, and beyond just the statement that Austin makes right now, he's done a lot of writing uh, in that area, a lot of outreach because it's, it's, you know, we're, he's targeting those very people who are, you know, the front line of defense for the, the population seeking happiness and seeking reconnection. So, um, you know, good on you, man. Absolutely. The last thing I want to cover with you guys, and then we'll get out of here, is uh, the importance of sleep. What happens to our brains when our sleep is crap? (laughs) I can start with that. In the last hundred years, we've made tremendous strides in understanding what sleep does for the body. But still, we live in a society where it's seen as a badge of honor to operate on four hours of sleep. I would say medical residency is the best example of that. Specifically, these high-intensity surgical residencies where it's, oh, well, I only had two hours of sleep last night, but I'm still here in the hospital seeing patients. Okay, uh, why are we so excited about that? We know that sleep is associated with worse decision-making, for example, which is exactly what you want in somebody who is operating on you. So what does sleep do for the brain? Well, it does a number of different things. Let's begin with a little background. Sleep is associated with better overall health. People who get more sleep have lower rates of developing all sorts of diseases. Those diseases go from heart disease and then all the way up to Alzheimer's disease. We see that not getting enough sleep is associated with higher rates of developing Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so that's long-term brain health. We know that getting more sleep may be protective against developing this degenerative brain disease. What I think is more interesting is what is it doing in the short run? What happens when we skip a few nights of good sleep in favor of watching an extra couple hours of Netflix, which is something that, yes, I've been doing in the past as well. When we don't get enough sleep, we become more emotionally reactive. We become less able to make these measured decisions. We become less able to suppress poor choices. And so that means a whole bunch of different things. That means that when we're interfacing with friends, family, coworkers, trying to land a business deal, we're more likely to snap at that other person. We're more likely to feel like they are trying to get us as opposed to working with us on our team. And that damages our social interaction. Great. Obviously not something we want. Sleep deficit is associated with behaviors of loneliness. What does that mean? Well, loneliness is an epidemic in the United States. A recent survey showed that 47% of people feel like they are experiencing being alone in a given week. So what does sleep deficit do to loneliness? Well, in a study by Matthew Walker, who is a a provider, he is a a sleep doctor who wrote a book called Why We Sleep, which we highly recommend. 
he showed that people who are sleep deprived don't want to be as close to other people physically. They wow. had people who were sleep deprived and people who had a good night's sleep go into this room and then the researcher would approach these people and they'd say, tell me when it gets uncomfortable. People who were sleep deprived said that they were uncomfortable a significantly larger distance than the people who had gotten enough sleep. Moreover, people who were sleep deprived could be, when, when an outside group of people looked at people who were sleep deprived, they felt lonelier looking at these people who were sleep deprived. So it shows that sleep deprivation may induce an, uh, a loneliness contagion, a contagious loneliness. Okay, so these are just a couple of the Dude, things. Wow. Not to mention sleep deprivation. I love people say not to mention. Then you're going to have, go ahead and mention <laughs> there, there are other things. To Please mention, mention it goes without saying, let me say it. As if we needed more reasons to get good sleep. People who don't get enough sleep tend to eat more calories of poor caloric, uh, or I should say poor quality than people who get enough sleep. Somewhere in the ballpark of 300, 350 calories in a day. They don't spend any more calories. It's not like they then go offset it with exercise. They just eat more calories. And those tend to be calories that are not great for us. So these are things like uh, unhealthy fats and, and carbohydrates. When they put them on a buffet table, that's what they tended to pick. Let's keep going. What does sleep deficit do to your decision-making? Well, there's research showing that people become a bit more impulsive. And why might this be happening? Well, sleep functionally disables the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. In just one night of sleep deprivation, there is a 60% increase activation in the amygdala. In two nights of sleep deprivation, there is a decreased connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So the implications of not getting enough sleep is so much beyond what we already probably know, which is I don't feel as good. I feel a little bit more snappy at other people. I feel a little bit less focused. That's true, but so much more is true. And I think the message would be, when you are investing in your sleep, you're investing in so many aspects of your life, but specifically in your brain function, in your thinking. So it's not like I need to get my things done and then maybe I'll get enough sleep tonight. If you want to, I don't know, be a happier, healthier person or make good decisions at work, you want to land that business deal, you don't want to have an impulsive decision where you sell all your stocks based on something you heard on the radio, you need that sleep. It is going to balance you out and ensure that you're making the best decisions possible. Damn, that sleep's important to me <laughs> because I just, I get super irritable and I'm brain dead like when I don't get sleep. So it's something I've really worked on. And now that I'm working on it through a bunch of ways that I've talked about on the podcast, um, ad nauseum, people I'm sure have heard all the tactics and things like that. But I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me. I got a cabinet in there of supplements. I mean, there's probably thousands, literally thousands of dollars worth of shit in there. And if I don't get enough sleep, I go in there, I take 50 things and this and that. And I feel a little better, a little more functional. And the next day I just get a good night's sleep and I don't need any of that stuff. I mean, it trumps everything <laughs> in terms of performance. You know, when you, you, uh, you, you take a group of people and I've done this and, and ask them, what are the most important lifestyle choices uh, that you think are really important for your health? Sleep is never on the top of the list or never even uh, mentioned as among the top couple, two or three. It's always uh, about exercise and about the food that you eat. And, you know, very rarely do people really recognize that this is, you can do it. You can not exercise for the rest of your life. And it, it may affect your lifespan uh, to some degree. Uh, you could stop eating for 40 days and 40 nights and then you'll eat again. You know, if you, you don't sleep for a week, you'll probably die. 
So, yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing that's, that's uh, more aggressive would be holding your breath. So that's how important is we spend a third, we should spend one third of our lives sleeping. We don't spend a third of our lives exercising. We don't spend a third of our lives eating, but we spend a third of our lives doing this activity that is ubiquitous in every animal on the planet. Even you know, every animal shuts down. And, you know, we used to think that until quite, quite recently that this is a, that everything is shutting down during sleep and everything is, you know, uh, going, uh, slowing off and there's not uh, any activity and nothing is further from the truth. Brain waves are active. Uh, metabolic processes are extremely active. Uh, and what we've now learned quite recently is that the process of cleaning, cleaning the brain, the glymphatic system, is activated during uh, deep sleep as well, allowing the brain to purge itself of accumulated metabolic waste, not the least of which is uh, amyloid protein, misfolded protein, that uh, again, Dr. Matthew Walker has uh, demonstrated is, um, you know, is something that uh, is significantly higher uh, when measured in the spinal fluid uh, and people who've missed a night of sleep. So we're accumulating higher levels of this uh, questionably toxic uh, protein. That's, uh, uh, is it necessarily toxic? That's uh, part of another, another story. But, you know, I think, as Austin said, the idea of our decision-making being threatened, uh, that's demonstrated in study after study. And, you know, as it relates to our food choices, again, as Austin mentioned, you don't sleep well, you make bad food choices. Make bad food choices, you're going to gain weight. Gain weight, and guess what happens? You don't sleep well. So body fat ultimately compromises your ability to get a good night's sleep. Therefore, you're going to make continued poor food choices, and you're back into yet another feed, call it what you will, feed forward <laughs> cycle. Right. So, you know, most people don't know uh, how they are sleeping. Are they... Have they been to a sleep specialist and had a polysomnogram to determine how well they sleep? Or have they bought an aura ring, for example, or other wearable device that can give them uh, some metrics as to the length and quality of their sleep? Very important to do that, you know? And when you realize that you didn't get enough sleep or and or it's not restorative, then you begin to make lifestyle modifications like avoiding blue light exposure in the evening, reducing your caffeine consumption after a 2 or 3 p.m., uh, getting some exercise, winding down at night, all those things that we know, making the room extra dark and uh, maybe reducing the temperature a couple of degrees. Various pointers that are uh, helpful to, to really work on your hygiene, your sleep hygiene. Maybe a couple of milligrams of melatonin might be helpful for you or for somebody. It's reasonable. I was going to ask about the melatonin piece and also shout out to Aura Ring because when, once I started quantifying my sleep and gamifying it and challenging myself and my, even some of my nerd buddies will text each other, I got a 94 F you, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a really healthy competition, but like then I can track actually, oh, last, like two nights ago, I got really a nice percentage of deep sleep and REM sleep. But what was interesting is I had a really high HRV it was like 59, which is pretty high for me. And I thought, okay, what did I do last night? I took an hour-long infrared sauna and in my clear light sauna, and I did this chakra uh, alignment meditation where you kind of hum and activate the different chakras. And I did that. And like, I hadn't eaten anything different. That's really the only thing that was kind of un uncustomary. And so I could now look at that and go, oh, wow, maybe if I did that a few more nights, I could correlate if there's, you know... Uh, hey, I'm all for the end of one, you know? Yeah, that's and cool. You're, you're right. And 
why ends of one are important is because that's the only person who's is is being looked at here and you are unique and it may be that your sauna or or whatever else you did is effective in terms of you you're getting immediate feedback and ultimately you're going to learn uh, you're going to look at those variables one by one and determine, hey, which one had the biggest impact on the amount of time I got deep sleep and therefore was activating uh, my lymphatic system, purging my brain, et cetera. How much time was I in REM? What was my total length of sleep? What was my sleep onset looking like? What was my heart rate variability that you point out was uh, a metric that you're following? These things are all very important for we biohackers who want to know this stuff about ourselves. What I was going to ask was uh, in regard to melatonin, I've heard some experts say that if you habituate yourself to taking exogenous forms of melatonin, that you're going to downregulate your body's ability to produce it. Do you think there's any truth to this? Is it something you'd want to cycle and not get dependent on or does it matter? I would say that uh, by and large, if you don't have to take it, then don't. Um, I use melatonin extremely infrequently, but I do it when I cross time zones, large time zones, three hours, not enough for push, push me to take melatonin. Uh, I personally, end of one, uh, I, I can absolutely feel melatonin when I take it in a very big way. I actually once took another uh, actual sleeping medication on my way over uh, to Europe and I, I, I you know, I wasn't the psilocybin, but it was it was darn close. I was really out to lunch on the flight, and uh, I, you know, it's I've not been like, there. It's not like they can kick you off the plane when you're in the middle of the Atlantic. But uh, so some people are more sensitive than others, and I, I find I'm pretty uh, exquisitely sensitive even to melatonin. So for me, one milligram seems to be uh, plenty. But for some people, three, even five, and some even 10 milligrams of melatonin are, uh, is well tolerated and does the job. But I would say that your point is well taken and that is wouldn't be something you'd want to do all the time. Look at those other factors, those lifestyle factors, leverage those, modify those, see what works for you. And beyond that, like the Aura Ring, get some feedback in terms of what is the quality, not just quantity of your sleep. Love it. All right, guys, last question. Uh, you guys have taught me so much today. You've taught our listeners so much and our viewers, by the way, this is a great YouTube video. Those of you that are just listening to the podcast, uh, who have been three teachers or teachings that you might recommend our listeners go check out? Could be in any area of life, just something that's really informed who you are. It's a great question. I want to say the default one here, which is my dad. Uh, I can't. And I was I just going to say you. I was just going to say you. <laughs> Well, I beat you to the punch. You're going to have to find somebody else. But as you are a mentor for me, uh, in not just the academic world, but in becoming the type of person that I want to become and working on this book project with you, it's, it's one thing to talk about the science with somebody else who's interested in the science. And after three cups of coffee, we're both really interested in the science. <laughs> but to be able to explore this philosophy piece of what is it we're trying to do in life and how can we share these things we've learned with other people? It's been incredibly meaningful to me. Other people who I'd like to credit with at least the last several years of my journey would be a couple of my good friends from home. And then Alan Watts' philosophy has been of huge uh, benefit to me more recently in trying to just say, what, what are we doing in this world? What are we trying to get out of it? And what are the things that really don't matter so much? that we don't have to fixate upon. I have also invested in some stoic philosophy that has been helpful in grounding me. 
as far as academic people, I've been a big fan of Matthew Walker's work. We mentioned him before. Um, he is a sleep scientist from Berkeley, and he is showing the world how critically important sleep is. He opened up that world for me because I tried to justify the idea that sleep was some sort of a secondary activity until I started to appreciate some of the research that he's been doing. So that would be, I'd say, my my core go-to right now. I've really been thankful for people like you who have been willing to create podcasts to democratize information. And I've absolutely loved listening to podcasts from Hidden Brain to Rhonda Patrick because it's just the spread of ideas. It creates that spark of insight that will sometimes be the reason that I want to write a blog post or just write in general to create that curiosity. And so I guess that's just a general shout out to people like you who are willing to get out there and have opinions and research this stuff and take it out of textbooks and make it available. Amen, brother. How about you, David? Who are your three? Well, uh, in, uh, I'm going to bend the rules as well. And yeah, um, I noticed he, he gave 10, but I let it slide. <laughs> That's the way it goes. <laughs> hey, ma'am, gratitude has no bounds. Uh, I too would thank my father, uh, who I miss. I really miss more and more as years go by because his lessons become more and more meaningful as I get older. He was a, a highly skilled uh, neurosurgeon, brain surgeon. But it was the compassion part that uh, I still um, I remember most, and so he he was and remains powerful influence, and I have the uh, opportunity to have that influence from uh, who came before and who came after, and that's Austin. Austin is uh, it serves as a mentor for me and uh, has for done that for many years, though you you don't know it. Um, based upon your life choices and, and that I've watched, I've been so proud of, and it uh, has caused me to modify my behavior uh, and this uh, process of writing a book. You know, I've done this before and I know what it takes. And uh, Austin, who has not written a book before, but this t- uh, time around was able to refine our messaging and as I have said before, hold my feet to the fire of making certain that everything we've said has been substantiated by peer-reviewed literature. But beyond that, um, the morality part, the ethics part, uh, I do my best and I, and I, I see how you accomplish those, those parts of life and uh, it, it serves to inform me. And similarly, uh, my wife, your mom is a uh, you know is a model for me to watch how she navigates the world and how she uh, distances herself to get back to neurophysiology from her uh, amygdala and always guides us back to taking a look at things and uh, being rational about responses. I am proud to be friends with a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Bland who uh, really made it uh, safe for me to come out as a neurologist in terms of being good with the challenges from the mainstream that I have endured and now welcome because of my approach to understanding uh, parts of the science 
that deal with the brain that don't necessarily resonate with mainstream neurology that have more to do with prevention of disease and the influence of lifestyle choices. Uh, Dr. Bland, who created what's called the Institute for Functional Medicine, has created a safe place, if you will, over the past 25 years for uh, us uh, uh, iconoclastic um, disruptors who now I wear that badge in, in a, in, you know, proudly. And I would say, like uh, Austin said, this isn't necessarily the mentor part, but it's the gratitude part for people like yourself who recognize that the messaging is really important, that people have to hear other sides of stories, that, uh, and to make these venues available to us today uh, to get out what little information we have, what little piece of the puzzle we might be contributing to. Maybe it's the corner piece on, or maybe it's just one of those pieces in the middle somewhere, but allowing us to share what we've learned, uh, right or wrong, but just to create that space. So that's a, a vote of gratitude. Awesome. Wow. What a beautiful podcast episode and conversation today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, give us a URL's website, social media, anything you want to send people to go look at. Well, uh, the book is, here's the book. There Let's you go. hold it up for our, our YouTube viewers. Look at it right there. All three cameras. You see the soap, Take a peek. The soap suds on the brain. Yeah. And this has all their secret manuscript notes in here oh, too, gosh. which is fascinating. It's neat to see like the kind of the working copy of a yeah. book by the author. So yeah. Well, the um, website for that is brainwashbook, brainwashbook.com. Cool. And uh, more information at drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Lots and lots of information, thousands of research uh, articles in their full PDF form, and it's totally searchable as well. But I would say brainwashbook.com is a great place to go. I have a Instagram account at Austin <laughs> Perlmutter and a Twitter account at Austin Pearl MD which I am occasionally active on. Cool, because you're taking care of your brain. You don't want to be Trying addicted to. to social media. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword of like, you know, building a career and also being mindful. Well, thanks so much for joining me, guys. I really you, appreciate your time today. Awesome. And that, my friends, concludes episode 271 of the Lifestylist Podcast. Man, I can't believe we're creeping up on 300 episodes. Uh, right at the time of this recording, we're hovering around... 4.2 million downloads, which is a staggering number of times for uh, these episodes to be downloaded and listened to by people. I'm extremely grateful, especially during these trying times, to be able to do what I do for a living. And that is interview my favorite people on the planet and share those conversations with you. Speaking of sharing, if you benefit from these podcasts here that I'm producing and putting out into the stratosphere... Uh, please share them with friends and family. I think right now so many of us are cooped up indoors and can use not only some entertainment, but also some inspiration. I know that I'm listening to tons of audiobooks and podcasts myself as an avid podcast fan. And uh, it's a great way for you to support independent media, media that is hopefully in most cases uh, integrous and if, if not, uh, admittedly so when mistakes are made. I think now more than ever, it's incumbent upon us to look for alternative sources of information as the mainstream uh, sources for that information have proven to be uh, largely compromised, which thankfully is becoming obvious to so many people now. So with podcasts like this and various YouTube channels and blogs, 
etc., at least until some of us uh, get banned because we're not playing by the rules of big pharma, etc., the powers that be, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's a good time now to share that information. So if you're listening to this on a podcast app, at least the Apple one, it's really easy to share them now. It used to be quite difficult to share individual episodes, but you can actually click on a, you'll see like four little dots there on what you're listening to. And uh, one of those items in the drop down menu, if you click those dots, uh, says share and you can copy the link and text it, uh, or you can just directly text it or email it to a friend. And I really appreciate if you'd be able to do that. And uh, it's a way that you can give back without having to spend any money or anything. However, if you're looking to drop some cash, uh, I've got a couple of great ways for you to do that. One of them is to order Saqqara meals delivered to your door. I don't know about you, where you are in the world right now, but in Los Angeles, we're not supposed to leave the house much. And so um, Saqqara is a great way to make sure you're eating super fresh, delicious, organic food. You can find that food at Saqqara.com forward slash Luke. If you use the code Luke there, you're going to save 20% off your entire order. I love that sponsor because I, I don't particularly like preparing food or cooking. And uh, Saqqara makes it really easy for me to stay on my eating plan. And they also encourage me to eat more vegetables, which I am unlikely to do left to my own devices. So that's Saqqara.com forward slash Luke. And then Just Thrive probiotics are going to help you digest that food that you get from Saqqara. So make sure to uh, go to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. The code there is Luke15 and that saves you 15% off. And then uh, let's uh, go see my friends over at superfat.com. That's superfat.com. They've got some new keto cookies that are absolutely fantastic from what I hear. I'm waiting on my shipment, but uh, people are raving about them. I know that I like to eat a little treat here and there, but I don't want to eat gluten and a bunch of carbs and uh, all that nonsense. So um, I think you'd probably really do yourself a favor and get over to superfat.com in addition to their flagship product, which are their little fat snack packs, which are really great, by the way. Don't hoard now. Don't be psycho. But those are really great to keep around the house uh, in the event of emergencies and also just for travel. They're great. So go to superfat.com. So that's our three sponsors. The next show you can look forward to is on Tuesday with Wade Lightheart and Matt Gallant from Buy Optimizers, and they're going to teach us how to fix our digestion. And these guys know a lot about digestion, so they're going to talk about the various probiotics, foods that are good for your gut, uh, foods that wreck your gut. And uh, we talk a lot about enzymes. Enzymes are fascinating, and these guys really uh, break down the enzymes, no pun intended, because... If you know anything about enzymes, that's one of their many functions is breaking things down. So uh, that's Tuesday's show. Make sure you subscribe to the old Lifestylist podcast here. Uh, it's a great way to make sure that new episodes appear on your device. I know there's a couple podcasts that I listen to and I just forget to subscribe sometimes or I was cleaning up my, my feed and so I unsubscribed or deleted it and then I have to scroll all the way to the bottom and click on see all episodes to find the newest one. I think like on Bulletproof Radio, I need to click subscribe on that because for some reason I'm not. And it's one that I listen to uh, periodically. And so just uh, this morning, I was watching the sunrise here in Armageddon, Los Angeles. And um, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, I, wanna, I wonder what Dave's up to on Bulletproof Radio. So I, I went to the feed and it showed me an old ass episode and I had to do just that. So reminding myself to subscribe to the podcast I love. And it's not only convenient for you, but 
uh, just to show Oz behind his curtain. It really helps me as a podcast host because those of you that subscribe to the show uh, and make it so that each episode is downloaded to your computer or device, those episodes are much more likely to get listened to. And if they get, if you just click on one of my episodes and click play, that counts as a download, believe it or not. And uh, in the world of podcasting, you are very much uh, assessed and valued at the number of downloads you have. That's what the whole point is. And that's why many of the huge podcasts in the world will put out like 10, 15, 20, 30 minute episodes that are just kind of, well, in some cases, in my humble opinion, sort of fluffy and not necessarily that deep or high value uh, because it's a way to game the podcast downloads. Now, I've always wanted to put out like shorter shows just periodically. I was going to do that when I started doing my solo shows. And then I did my first one and it was like two hours or something. Because <laughs> I just, as you might have guessed here in the outro, we're at six and a half minutes. I'm just long-winded. I have a lot to say. I love to talk. And so I finally found my voice after living a life of feeling unheard and uh, unable to express myself. And so I really enjoy that now. Uh, so I've, I've thought about doing some shorter easily digested episodes. I've just never been able to keep them that short, to be honest. Uh, so uh, you can help me win the download game by just subscribing to the show and, you know, clicking on a listen here and there. I mean, hopefully you're a super fan and you're listening to every single episode from start to finish. I know many people do, but some of mine are quite long and uh, intense, you know, two, three hours long, if that's what's called for. I don't try to make them that long, but if I'm in the zone with someone and we're in flow state and they're dropping knowledge, I ain't going to stop them. You know what I mean? My recorder's got room. I got a hard drive that'll fit a bunch of shows. So that's how I do it. But anyway, point is, I just want to thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing these episodes with friends. Thank you for your subscription. Thank you so much for those of you that are um, situated in a way that you can support the sponsors. You can always find all of the sponsors and every product that I personally use and recommend at lukestory.com forward slash store, which is a great way to contribute uh, to funding everything that it takes to keep this thing going, which is a lot of people and a lot of things now that we have these super deluxe show notes and transcripts and three camera video shoots and all the things I've been doing in 2020 to step up the production value of this podcast. So with that, my friends... I will bid you farewell. Don't forget to uh, stay spiritually aligned. And, you know, I don't know. I don't want to tell people to pray or, or to trust in God because some people don't believe that. But that's that's my strategy to get through this stuff. I just remember that there's, there's a bigger picture and uh, we get very myopic and it's easy to get caught in your limbic system and in the fear response and get stuck in that fight or flight place that the media loves to keep you in so that they can sell you shit and hypnotize you um, as I try to sell you shit right now with our sponsors. But um, <laughs> I think hopefully my motives are a bit more wholesome than just profit. But uh, that just occurred to me, the irony of that statement. But uh, the point being is that for me right now, I'm having a great time. I mean, I'm, I feel for people that are struggling and suffering. I'm very concerned about our economy and things like that. But uh, I also realize that I can only control what I can control. And that is my own energy, my own state. And so every day when I wake up, that's what my number one priority is. I'm not trying to change the world, save the world or anything. I'm just sharing information that I find to be useful. I'm doing my morning sun gazing, meditation, breath work, praying, doing 
uh, prayers with my girlfriend. Today we did some kundalini yoga. I'm doing everything I can to just keep my consciousness right and keep my mind right and to avoid negative thoughts, emotions, not in a spiritual bypass way, but just choosing higher and higher levels of consciousness in the face of adversity. So there's my piece on that today. And with that, I will for now finally, finally say goodbye and I'll be back in your eardrums on Tuesday.